Top of the evening, everyone. I am Joseph Cotto. Joining me tonight is Alex Garner, who you probably know as Alexander the Great on Twitter. And if you don't know him, I highly suggest you follow him at Lead Pacer, uh, a, a, a fascinating account. I always see no shortage of interesting stuff there. And we'll be discussing lots of interesting stuff tonight. Alex, how's it going? It's going great. There's nothing going on in the world these days, huh? Nothing to talk about. Now, <laughs> <laughs> uh, such a boring time. It's unbelievable. Uh, but we were, you know, the discussion was going to be about uh, the Guild of Greats, which it still will be, but there's so much other stuff to get into that's relevant to your life. But uh, what you are working on now, I, I mean, you are a, a business consultant, but your pet project that you have been trying to expand and apparently you're having some good success in expanding it is the guild of greats what exactly is this organization and uh why do you think it's important for people to hear about yeah so first of all um i think tribal formation is going to be one of the major themes of our times um you know the strongest tribes are going to be ethno-religious nuclear family things like this but these aren't things you can really um you know create you know on the ethno-religious side You've got to be born into something like that. Um, you know, and I married into someone that's part of a small ethno-religious group, and that really helped inform me as to the value of tribes and how um, there's so many advantages to being part of one, really not just within a certain community, but wherever you go all over the world. And so I saw that and it started changing my thinking. You know, my background is in business, just to give you a little bit of perspective on me. I worked in corporate America uh, for Fortune 100 companies in sales and management roles. I jumped off the entrepreneurial cliff and uh, launched a beverage alcohol product, a cocktail innovation that was really unique. Uh, was able to raise a few million dollars, you know, take it into the largest spirit distributor um, in the country, which is extremely difficult to do because it's kind of a mob run business. But I was uh, fortunate to be able to get that in with them, which is really the biggest deal in the spirits industry is getting a distributor. And then able to launch at Walmart, um, you know, in about eight to 10 states, you know, all across the United States. And, you know, that was really getting rolling and then COVID hit. And then all of a sudden I realized this isn't something I'm going to be able to continue on because I realized that we had a timeline shift and the world had changed in permanent ways. And all of a sudden, you know, some of my business issues weren't as big of a deal as other things that were going on. So I waded into consulting, strategic consulting, working with early stage companies, startups, um, you know, doing that for a while. And one of the things that was nice about kind of a byproduct of my business shutting down uh, when COVID hit was I was able to, you know, participate a little bit more in the conversation. You know, I had a Twitter account for quite a while, but was kind of a lurker and would retweet stuff. And I would really use it to follow the conversation, use it as a curated news feed. But I wasn't really interacting because whenever you're you have a branded product and you're selling into major distributors and into the world's largest retailer, you have to mind your P's and Q's. There's certain things you may not want to say. And so whenever, you know, COVID changed the game, you know, it's kind of, we're starting over with the clean slate. I started getting more involved on Twitter and finding my voice. And of course, I think there's a lot of people out there that this happened to in 2020. And, you know, I, after the period of probably a couple of years, I started realizing like men are really in a bad state. Um, we don't really, a lot of the old organizations uh, just are, are basically defunct or it's a bunch of old heads. They're not really recruiting young guys in. 
And there's a major disconnect there. And so, and I think a lot of these organizations, and I remember my dad taking me to uh, Rotary Club in the mornings with the local business people. And I really enjoyed that, but I don't know who's still going to Rotary anymore. I don't think young people are. And, you know, Freemasonry, Shriners, all of these old organizations have kind of fallen by the wayside. And I think a lot of it is just because um, the changing dynamics and how people connect on social media. I think we're really sorting by frequency now. And social media, particularly access, does a really good job of, of helping us do that. And that's why I'm talking to you right now. But um, you've got to go beyond just, you know, the digital connections. And so this really started in earnest with the Guild um, about a year, probably about August, September of last year. And, you know, Twitter's had different, you know, manic leadership structures. It's had different algorithms at different points in time. And people are shadow banned, banned. There's all kinds of different things that happen. And so I thought, I want to get people that see the world the way I do into something that's outside of Twitter so we can continue the conversation in case something were to happen to us. And it's not like we're talking about things that are, I mean, I'm not nearly as controversial as a lot of the people that I follow, but I just thought you never know what's gonna happen. Um, so I started building a group in Telegram and we ran the numbers up pretty quickly. And it was a very good conversation, but um, there was also some elements within the group that people wanted to talk about some subjects that are, I feel are kind of tired and I'm not gonna go into what they are because this is, but uh, kind of common topics that don't really go anywhere productive. And I said, we're gonna cut this out. And so what I'm gonna start doing is charging for the service because I'm spending a lot of time in this group. Um, and I actually thought about shutting it down because I thought if we're not meeting in the real world, if we're just gonna have a group chat that's not sufficient to build brotherhood, camaraderie, any kind of tribal formation, and so I basically told the group, they're like, no, 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 don't shut it down. This is one of the best things I've ever been a part of. So then a month later, I said, I'm going to start charging for this. And it weeded out a lot of the people that needed to go. Because there are certain topics um, that you can go find for free on Twitter. You know, and so I don't want to get into that. I'm talking like, you know, more like racist type stuff, like, you know, racial orange. I'm like, I don't want to do that. And so um, we started charging and I found that the group was going in more of a business direction where you know the, the the basic premise is the world has changed in permanent ways you know since covid we all understand that and the current structure isn't really working for a lot of men in particular for white guys are it's pretty tough but it's really tough for all men in general right and so what we need to do is find a way to rally together you know and and find other men that have shared views and values that have a more traditional view of the world you know, that are focused on family formation, business creation. Um, that's really the way that we can build brotherhood because um, you can't really do it unless I think there's some kind of financial element or you're driving towards something greater. It has to be like an optimistic view. It can't be something that's like doom and gloom. Um, you're talking about the same things over and over again. So it's turned into something now where we've got close to 40 members. You know, not a ton, but it's very high caliber of conversation. I would venture to say that the average IQ in this group is probably a standard and a half deviation above the mean. I mean, we've got really smart guys in here. We have entrepreneurs, we have, um, you know, investors, we have, uh, I could just go, you know, classic, you know, classicists from Berkeley. I mean, we have a really impressive group of guys that bring something interesting to the table. So, um, you know, in light of having, you know, keeping this group alive and charging for it, you have to offer more than just a paid telegram group. 
And so we, I wanted to see, hey, how many guys can we get together in Miami? And so we did our first, um, you know, kind of annual conference in April, and we had about 20 guys show up. So that was a big sign, like, hey, there's really something here. And we had featured speakers. Uh, some of us played golf. Uh, we went to the beach. You know, we went out at night, you know, do the, you know, dinner, cigarettes, booze, all that good stuff, the way that guys bond. Um, we went out on a yacht which was a really fun and all the guys brought their, if you had a girlfriend or wife along with you, you brought her along. So it was kind of like a team building type environment and it was really special and unique. And I don't think a lot of people are doing things quite like this. And so, um, you know, we continue to add good people um, just, you know, to give you some perspective, it's a thousand dollars a year, which is not a ton of money, but it's enough money to where you do need to be serious about it because this is something where you kind of get what you get. You know, the more you're willing to engage, the more you're willing to put into it, the more you're going to get out of it. Um, we have regional chapters in Miami, D.C. Uh, we're looking at starting chapters in Texas as well as Southern California. So that's on the docket. Um, we have members in, in Greece, in Mexico, in Brazil, um, the U.K., the Netherlands, Lebanon. So most of the guys are in the U.S., but this is a global group. And um, I, I think the thing that we do beyond the, you know, the group chat and the uh, and the chapter meetups is we also have an, uh, a weekly call on Tuesday evenings where everybody gets together and we do a video call and we talk about topical issues, what's going on in the world, as well as, you know, personal and business challenges. And so it's a very collaborative thing where guys are trying to help each other. And, um, you know, we've helped guys, you know, fund companies. We've helped people find jobs. So. You know, the key is we need to be transacting with each other. We need to be talking regularly, meeting regularly. It's, it's a very constructive thing for me. There is no question there has to be some form of uh, fraternity uh, nowadays because a lot of men are atomized. They don't feel that they have many resources. I'll put it that way to build a better life. And a lot of guys become desperate and they wind up going down rabbit holes. We don't need to get into them. But it's 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 a, a sad situation that a lot of men in the West are in, especially the United States, and probably you could add Canada and uh, maybe Australia and New Zealand to that, but perhaps the situation in those countries isn't quite as bad yet, but certainly in the U.S. and Canada, uh, although none of these places are especially good. <laughs> uh, yeah. it, it's, it's, it's really uh, uh, an interesting state of affairs in a very bad way that a lot of men are going through. It's something like the Guild, I think, is, is a very good idea for uh, flipping the script. I, 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 flipping the script that has to be done because the, the, the way the story is playing out now is very bad indeed. Yeah, I don't think I fully understood how bad it was um, over the last couple of years being on X and then building this group. You know, and the thing with the group too was in the early stages, there really were, I don't want to say growing pains because we've always had the ability to get people interested in this or join the group, but it's more of you would get, you know, vetting people that really weren't a good fit. And we do have a vetting process where, you know, somebody will state why they want to join. They fill out an application form. Um, they'll talk to me and then talk to one or two other people and state like why they'd like to be part of something like this. And we, it's very conversational. We learn about their background because we have to put the right people in and ever, and we did have some issues in the past where we had some people that came in that were, were um, they don't have anybody to talk to. Nobody really wants to hear what they have to say because they're um, they're negative, destructive people. And that's another thing. I, I feel like social media, unfortunately, 
kind of sorts a lot of people for mental illness. There's a lot of people that don't have a lot of meaning in their personal lives or in their business lives. Mm -hmm. And they're able to go on social me media and build some kind of an audience. And, um, mm -hmm. and sometimes it's very abusive in terms of the relationship. And we had a few Absolutely. people that came in that were, you know, misrepresented what they were about, or they wanted to go down these rabbit holes and drag everybody else down. And, you know, I actually had to talk to them, you know, one-on-one -on -one and say, listen, guys, this isn't a bar type environment where you're, you know, knocking back beers or cocktails with somebody and you can measure that person, you know, in real time, face to face, because men have a way of kind of checking each other. And if somebody gets out of line, they can correct that. But you can't go into a digital group and just dump on people because you're having a bad day or you're upset about something or your, your relationship isn't going the way that you want. Like, we're here to help you. We want to help you get through it, but you can't just go in there and stir things up and then and then kind of go away. And, you know, interesting enough, interestingly enough, the people that act like this don't want to meet in person. They don't want to meet in person. They just want to be in the group. Yeah, a lot of them don't even like being known online by their uh, real name. They'd rather hide behind an avatar or, you know, do or only do a voice only conversation through a street. So no, I absolutely know the sort of person you're referring to in my years of, you know, being on social media, this element does make itself well known. And it has such a loud voice because it says the most outrageous things with no accountability, except maybe, you know, having the account deleted, uh, then they just get a new sock account and uh, on the, the, the process goes. This, yeah, we'll get back to the guild because there's a very mm -hmm. important question I want to ask about it. It really is a fascinating concept. But one thing I have seen looking at Western men is that the nationalists uh, of Europe, uh, they know very clearly what they stand for. They stand for their ethnicity. They stand for cultural continuity. They stand for the integrity of their group, demographically speaking. Uh, they basically stand for what their forefathers stood for, and they can explain to you what they're all about, and they are generally very functional people. Uh, but in America, a lot of the so-called nationalists, they go down rabbit holes. They tend to hide behind avatars. They have an extreme obsessive hatred of women, which... It uh, makes me believe that a lot of these guys might not like women to begin with. Uh, not that there's anything wrong <laughs> yeah. with that, but there's certainly something wrong yeah. about how they go about uh, articulating this. And it seems to me, just being you know straight out here, uh, the American nationalist community is of much lower quality than the European nationalist community, even though the right in Europe is not as big as it is in the U.S. I don't know if you've seen this, but that's my impression. Yeah, and I think a lot of these guys think that the battle to be fought is online. And they get banned and they come back and they say inflammatory things like, look, here's my view, Joseph, is that you've got to be able to read a room as a man, as a human being, and understand what's going on out there. And the key is to stay in the game. And so whenever people say stupid things, understanding that you're going to be censored or banned, and then you got to do all this work to start your account all over again, this is stupid. Like, you know, stay in the game, like temper your moderate yourself. You know, there's a you know, you could, there's a way of saying exactly what you want to say in the right way. And people can read in between the lines and understand where you're coming from. But, you know, to the bigger point that you've made here is Americans really do have an identity crisis. And it's, it's with white men, but it's also with black men as well, because we're disconnected from our historic from, from our ancestral homelands. And I talk about this, and this is something we occasionally will talk about in the Guild, but, 
you know, I've got a friend of mine from Africa, you know, from, from the Congo, and he's half Congan, Congan, half Cameroonian. And, you know, he talks about the experience in Africa, you know, that he had and, you know, going to the West when he was 16. And, you know, he loves Africa and he actually wants to go back eventually. But, you know, he's connected to his tribe. He's like, have you ever heard of Shaka Zulu? I said, no, I haven't. He's like, they made a movie about him. Go learn about Shaka Zulu. And so, you know, some of these, you know, Africans that are, you know, more recent people that have moved to the West, they still are very much, they know their tribe. They know exactly where they came from. And so that kind of helps orient them wherever they go. We don't have that as Americans in many cases, particularly those of us that have been here for six, you know, five, six, seven, eight generations. A lot of people haven't even been to their ancestral homeland. And that was very important for me was um, going to, you know, France and Germany and Switzerland and Czechia, um, you know, the places that my ancestors walked. That really helped inform me and give me a sense of pride about where I came from and the journey they had to make to come to America. But a lot of men do not have that here in America. That is so true. You know, it's something because I remember hearing from people who grew up, uh, as I did in, in my area of, of Central Florida, but these people, unlike me, uh, we were all born here, but they are multi-generational uh, inhabitants. They're, they're the descendants of uh, British settlers who came in the 1800s, 1880s, either from Britain or from other parts of the U.S. but they're a British background. And a lot of these people, uh, they have, they think it's so boring, their ancestry. They think it's so sort of like, uh, degenerate's not the word, but they think it's uh, sort of subpar. It's not exotic or interesting. And I look at these people like they're crazy because I think it's outstanding that they have a heritage that goes back to, you know, the founding stock of the area. Uh, as I always tell people, my father came to New York in 1949, not speaking English. Uh, and so for these people to, to have this sort of uh, really uh, unique heritage uh, to me is something, but to them, it's not. And uh, I guess over the years, as I've learned, it's, it's been easier to accept sort of the decline of America if you don't have deep roots here, as is certainly the case with me paternally and maternally. My mother's folks came in the 1880s and they stayed in the Northeast and in the big cities there. So it's not, you know, <laughs> it's not like they ever went out to the fruited plains. Uh, but for a lot of people who have a much deeper ancestry, much deeper heritage and identity in, in America, mm -hmm. there is a lack of connection with their roots. Uh, the idea is that their ancestors put down new roots here and they became Americans. And so they're not really uh, Czechoslovakian or anything like that anymore. But, you know, the reality is that everybody has a genetic profile and that has uh, serious consequences, whether you like it or not. Uh, and a lot of Americans, I think, have an issue with having a coherent nationalist movement because they have this sort of identity. People were expected to assimilate into the WASP uh, culture up until the 1960s. Now that that's gone, a lot of these folks who you know are disconnected from their uh, old world roots, they really find themselves in a, a sea of meaninglessness, of, of nothingness. And unfortunately, that leads them to engage in some really destructive behaviors, like embracing third world liberation, because they somehow equate the role of the white man in the West <laughs> with the role of a so-called oppressed group in the third world. Uh, and I look at this and I wonder why these people can't see that the same people who they're advocating would do very bad things to them. And I'm 
saying that very nicely for the purpose of this conversation. Uh, but, uh, you know, <laughs> after a while, you, you, <laughs> you sort of see how, how uh, lost a lot of American Westerners are. Yeah, they totally are. And one thing I want to say here and be very clear about is um, I think it's important to know your ethnic background because there's always something to be proud of. Always, no matter what it is, no matter where you come from, there's something that you can hang your hat on and be very proud of. You know, there, great things have been accomplished all over the world at different periods of time. Mm -hmm. And you need to find that and latch onto it. And that's why you know, some people are not big fans of the DNA test. Like I use 23andMe, um, you know, my brother use Ancestry.com. But, you know, if you don't have a detailed family tree, and a lot of people don't, you know, and, and that's probably a lot of people that came to America kind of decided we're going to leave this stuff behind. And they didn't really do a good job of, of, of you know, maintaining their records. But um, if you don't have a great family tree and understand your lineage, I think it, these DNA tests can be invaluable for me, for, for you. And I, um, I didn't have any major surprises, but it gave me clarity. It's like, OK, you're 46 percent French German, you're 30 percent British Irish, you're 17 and a half percent Czech. And then there's this part of you that's kind of undefined. And, oh, you've got one and a half percent Spanish Portuguese. I mean, this is all really interesting things that um, make me want to learn more about those places. And my wife took the test. This was interesting. She is 100 percent Levantine. No mix, 100 percent. And that helped me. Kind of, and, and they can actually now track it down to the specific regions and where you might be from. And sure enough, you know, she's from, you know, she's a Maronite Catholic right there on the mountainside, you know, in Mount Lebanon. And I just thought of like, I bet you her ancestors have been in that region for hundreds of years, maybe, you know, well over a thousand years they've been in that one region, you know, and these people are more connected to their land, Joseph. Like they are very, very connected to their land in a way that I think a lot of Americans aren't because, look, this is still the new world, you know, and whenever you go to the old world and you see, you know, I go to Lebanon and I see the ruins at Baalbek. You know, you, I go to Prague and I see the clock that's the oldest clock, you know, working clock in the world that actually predates Christopher Columbus going across the Atlantic and discovering the Americas. And this is amazing stuff, you know, but um, you have to go there and see it. Absolutely. And, you know, I like I said, I'm from Florida and I grew up going to St. Augustine a lot. And it's important for people to visit St. Augustine because that is a real link between the old world and the new world. It is a city that was built by the Spanish and rebuilt by the English. And so it looks like Bermuda, it looks like Hamilton Bermuda, yes. if people want a sort of reference, but with more of a, a Latin flair, but very, very similar. And there you actually go down the same streets that people from the old world did in the 1500s, uh, and you get to really experience how life was here. And you you see how important really the European element of colonization uh, was to America. It's not like America is just this place that came up in the new world with these people who decided they weren't something that they are. Uh, it was an extension of the old world, but just that over time, yeah. as people were born here, they adapted to their environment and they eventually formed a new identity, but the identity still has roots in the old identity. And I'm very uh, fortunate you know, to be from uh Florida, it's kind of a fluke because neither of my parents are, obviously. But uh, to be born in Florida, not terribly far from St. Augustine, to be able to see where this all started. And when you see where it all started and how it all started, you uh, come to understand the importance of the old world in the new world. But unfortunately, a lot of Americans don't make that connection. What they do, if they're interested, 
really in uh, pseudo tracing their roots, not actually doing the legwork that you've done. But they will, you know, get these avatars with these Deuce Vault things or these Conquistador Microsoft Paint helmets. And it's sort of like a mockery of the real thing. That's, I mean, that basically is what it is. But it is so in keeping with the sort of unserious Zoomer millennial, extremely online culture in America and other places today that uh, it makes sense. It's just doesn't make sense for the better. No, I mean, I think it's kind of playing around. It's like the video gamification of social media. Like, it's horseplay. Like, this isn't really serious stuff. And it's like, and I do think there's a thing in America right now where people are trying to, you know, the whole idea of whiteness. Like, what is whiteness? What exactly does that mean? And the truth is, you know, if you go back, you know, 100 years, I mean, this was like, you know, a wasp Germanic, you know, country, um, you know, mostly. And then you have, you know, Italians and Irish. And then we have, I say that it was black as well, but then you have these other people coming in and it really, and they were very distinct. You know, like if you look at like Italian Americans, you probably have 80% that have stayed in the Northeast in a very small area the entire time. They never really moved out across the country. Um, But it's kind of like, we're trying to decide, like trying to figure out like, how does all this stuff play together? Like, is there some kind of, you know, white identity, um, it's gonna, and then you have like the whole white Hispanic element as well, you know, which living in Texas, and I, you know, you see there's a very large white Hispanic population uh, that's increasingly conservative. How is that going to factor into everything? And I think that a lot of these historical alliances are going to be reframed. Some are going to break, but it's going to be really interesting in terms of putting together some kind of a conservative coalition. Um, what that's going to look like in 20 years from now, I honestly don't know. I mean, I, I've, I've kind yeah. of come to this. Go ahead. No, please go ahead. Yeah, so I, I honestly don't know. I mean, I've kind of something has happened over the last, I don't know, maybe six months to a year where, you know, I, I kind of went through a period of grieving after the 2020 election and realizing the old America was dead. And I remember talking with family members in the months after the election. and We all kind of had this consensus without even talking to each other that, you know, we knew that the game had changed and this wasn't really the country that we were grew up in. Um, it was going to be different. And so I kind of went through that and I thought it was, there was kind of like this fatalism, like it's, we're screwed. Like, I don't know what, what the hell we're going to do. And now I really think everything is in play. I think everything has kind of changed with what's going on in the world, what's going on in this country. You know, if you think about in three and a half years, the pace of change, the amount of things that have happened, um, you know, since the, not even three and a half years since the election. It hasn't even been that much time. I mean, I guess we're coming up on three years and it is incredible, you know, and I, I kind of look at it now that yeah, that predetermined view on how things may work out like, oh, woe is me. I don't know what's going to happen now. You know, could Trump win the election? He damn well could. Are they going to try to stop him? Yeah, they might. Yeah, they, they will. Um, so everything is in play now. And I don't think there's any way to really forecast, you know, and look too far into the future and know what things look like in 2025 or 20, 2030. What do you think? It's very difficult. I, and people know I, I'm pretty, <laughs> I've made several predictions and most of them have been right, but some of them have been wrong. Yeah. Uh, that goes for anyone. But uh, I do go out there and make very clear predictions. It's harder and harder to predict ex- you know, what's going to happen on the basis of what has happened in the past because, as you say, we're in this period of rapid transition. I do think they serve behavioral patterns 
uh, among certain groups, among certain people, if you're talking about, you know, specific candidates or whatever, and you can still make educated guesses, but the old days and their old ways are no longer the sort of benchmark that can be used for uh, predictive value in, in the way that was true only a few years ago. And that is so ironic because if you look at a picture, I bring this up all the damn time. If you look at a picture from 2009 and 2023, it could be the same year unless you're looking at a calendar in the picture or, you know, uh, basically that's about it because of clothing styles, people with smartphones back then computers basically look the same but uh as you mentioned so much has changed it's this time of rapid change but aesthetically it's basically frozen uh it's been frozen for uh, the better half of two decades now uh crazy as it is to say that 2009 was the better half of two decades ago uh it, it's really uh interesting so you have this immense change that makes it hard to do accurate predictions but then you also have this sort of stagnation in technology, and, you know, you talk about AI, but I'm talking about more like, you know, uh, technological goods uh, that people use day to day that informs how they go about their life in a host of ways. Uh, it just looks frozen since the late 2000s to me. I could be wrong. Uh, uh, anything to say about this, Alex? I think you're dead on. And I'm glad you mentioned this because, you know, I've been, you know, following fashion since probably 2009, 2010. I got divorced and I decided it's time to start dressing well. That was one of the big changes that happened whenever I got divorced. Like, all right, now let's start really investing in your appearance. And what I can tell you is over the last, you know, what are we looking at now, you know, 13 years, fashion is not changing. It is stuck. It is totally stuck in terms of like the whole athleisure movement came in. And that seems like it's, you know, people, a lot of people have used it as a reason to look sloppy. They're not going to do what you're doing. And dress the proper way. I mean, I'm sitting here, Joseph, I'm a victim of it. I'm here wearing a t-shirt, um, but it's, <laughs> but it's fine. like, you know, but it's like, I'm just saying like things really have um, stagnated. And if you look at, you know, people joke around about it all the time. Like the iPhone releases are like, there might be like one gram difference in weight. Like they took one gram out of the phone, but everything else is the same. I mean, we really are in a place where innovation with consumer goods, with, with fashion, with all these different things, seems like it's moving at a snail's pace. We are stuck. And a lot of it has to do with, you know, it has to do with our consciousness and where our energies are focused. And a lot of this has to do with, with the smartphone era and with so, the rise of social media um, to where we are, I think Jonathan Haidt talks about 2092, by the way, is a very critical year. And he talks about men that were born in 95, 95 and later, grew up in this world where they have a smartphone and they're getting on social media. And so it's actually rewired their brains and people are stuck on their phone or in front of the screen and they're living here instead of out here in the world. And there might be opportunities around them that they can't capture. They can't, they see a, a, you know, a pretty girl, they can't go talk to her because they're thinking about an app and swiping. Mm -hmm. So it's reorienting our consciousness. And you can see this in everything that's going on. So we are kind of becoming slaves to technology um, where we don't know how to operate without it. You know, I mean, it would be great if the Internet were to go away for a while or maybe even permanently. Like I enjoy the benefits of it as somebody that's been an early adopter. And, you know, I love talking to you and I love using it. Um, I think it's like a net, you know, net good, net bad for society. It's probably been more negative. It's interesting. I 
it's so hard to figure out. It depends upon the person, I think, where the internet's been a net yeah. positive or negative. But for society, it, it, it's, it's difficult to say. R really, it is. What I will say is that I was one of the last people to get a smartphone in 2015. And I got it kicking and screaming because professionally, I was not able to advance since I was using a flip phone. And people at that point were really judging you if you were still using a flip phone. Uh, and you know, in my case, the judgment was erroneous, but you could see why they would make it. And so I was one of the last people to enter the, the smartphone world. But I was obviously aware uh, of it. I mean, it was, I was totally surrounded by it. And the smartphone changed uh, how people live so much that it has, it's strange because we have all these changes taking place, these, these dizzying changes, disorienting changes, uh, politically, culturally, economically. And yet people since about 2008 into 2009, especially 09, 09 was the, the year of decision, if you will, in bringing about this yeah. present age, uh, people have just been living so similar because of these small and the apps. I was actually looking at uh, a commercial for uh, an, uh, an old, old iPhone from 09 and the apps and how people function with them, basically the same thing as today. And so it feels in a sense that, you know, maybe this thing, even though it's several uh, editions old, the phone, it's it's not that old, so to speak. It's it, it, 2009 was more similar to 2023 by far than it was to 1999. And you and I both we remember both years, uh, and that's saying something because obviously 09 is much closer to 99. But I think so many people becoming so inundated with social media, having so much uh, advanced technology at their fingertips, people now uh, expecting to have things done more instantaneously. They think they're more deserving of a voice, even if they don't have anything worthwhile to say. People believing that others uh, somehow are obliged to give an audience uh, to whatever you know the, the person wants to talk wants to come up with, it's not good. These are definitely negative impacts uh, of the internet. Uh, it has built a sense of entitlement. That's the best way of putting it. I would say among people who were born after '95, uh, uh, and you know, there's a reason why a lot of Zoomers nowadays can't take an opposing opinion. Or they, uh, if they do take it, if they'll just storm off, they they perceive it as a personal insult because they're used to living their own reality. Uh, they're used to living in their own basically one man parallel society, and uh, if something does not go smoothly within that society, they perceive it as an attack on them, not just somebody just liking what they have to say. And this is extremely bad. Uh, it's extremely bad for a host of reasons. But it's no surprise that the rate of mental health uh, issues among younger people is so high, uh, really. And there's no question that for all the good the internet has done, it has played into that. Yeah, I mean, in a lot of cases, they think what they're projecting on social media is their true self. And this really hits women as well. Like, I think, when I say, is it a net good, net bad, I think that, I feel like I'm pretty good at managing it. My biggest issue is probably spending a little too much time on it. But I don't get... Mm -hmm. I guess I've kind of, I've got a thick skin and over time I'm used to people behaving poorly and, and getting personal okay. and saying stupid stuff to where it's just like water off a duck's back. I'm used to it. And I know most people face to face mm -hmm. are going to crumble. Like they're not going to behave like that at all. But on social media, they have an outlet where they can behave poorly, right? And they can be something that, that to, to somebody. Um, so I've kind of gotten used to that, but I really do think in terms of like the detrimental effects, it's certainly the younger generation in terms of how they socialize, um, you know, and how they work and how they interact. 
think their brains are different in how they operate. Um, you know, the old school ways, it's tough for them to really under internalize that and understand. There's a certain way you conduct yourself, you carry yourself, you go about the world. But I think it's really been tough for, uh, it's, it's empowered women in a way in terms of like dating, where women have a menu of options that, you know, and men are so desperate. You know, we've seen plenty of, yeah. you know, videos and articles and data that backs that up how difficult of a time men are having. And, you know, I have people, Joseph, that reach out to me that make these kind of like, you know, dashboard confessional type things where they're just spilling their guts out and telling you all this stuff. And I'm like, I wasn't expecting this, but they really need someone to talk to. And in many cases, I say, listen, you know, I wish you would join the guild because I think you can be around, you know, other men and it's going to be really constructive for you. But also my time, like I don't have the ability to solve all of your problems all the time. Like I want you, I, I don't mind talking to you, but if you come in the guilds, you can be around a lot of people that maybe really do have similar problems. And I think that's really the value of having this kind of social club, vetted network, fraternity of sorts, where, you know, you've got guys that really understand where you're coming from. Like I really empathize for men and where they are right now, particularly younger men. Um, like it, it, this is more, this is, a, this is becoming a calling for me more, as much as anything else. It's not just something that I'm doing because, hey, maybe it's an opportunity. I really care about these people. I really care about these guys that are in the group, and I want to help them any way I can. Um, but I do see people on social media that I really want to help them, Joseph, but I can't do it. They won't let them. They won't. They, 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 I, they don't want to be measured. They don't want to be held accountable. They just, they're just kind of out there reacting and stirring things up. You know, that's very common today. No, and, and I understand it entirely. It's 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 unfortunate, but it is there. And uh, you can't give everyone your time, or it could. I mean, fundamentally, people are going to treat your time as if it's worthless if you just give it away to everyone for free. Uh, and in a way, you can't blame them because you're treating your own time as if it is. Uh, but it's good to find a way to help people, and organizations can help people more effectively than an individual can. And that's where something like the Guild of Greats obviously comes in. And this is what I wanted to get back to about the Guild. Before yeah, you let's come back. What do you think? What do you think it offers people, uh, obviously men, what, what do you think it offers men uh, in terms of value to their life more than anything else? What would you say is the most important aspect of the guild? Community. I think community is the most important thing right now. I don't think people have it. It's very hard to do, Joseph. I mean, it, it's not easy. I mean, you know, you've got to you've got to curate the right people. You've got to continue to bring in new folks that have fresh voices, different perspectives uh, from different areas. I mean, like the whole, I, you know, getting the right people in. I mean, is you have a lot of people that want to join, but you got to make sure it's the right fit. Um, but I think that community is one of the most important things right now because people don't really have it. And it's interesting because in America, um, you know, the nuclear family is broken down. We don't have multi-generation households anymore. We really are economic units, even consumer units is kind of how I look at it now. Like we're consumer units within this economic zone. By the way, I've been using that term for 20 years. Um, I hear people using it all the time. I remember 20 years ago, I realized that this place is just an economic zone. And then I got my first job out of college. And a lot of the job was like traveling around and getting hotel, you know, flights for team meetings and hotels and rental cars and expense accounts. And I thought, this is just needless activity. This isn't really doing anything, but it's kind of what you do because it's part of the business. 
you know, um, but we are living in an economic zone and people have been reduced down to consumer units. Um, in many cases, you know, when we, you know, I, I'm kind of tough on boomers sometimes. And I also got a lot, a lot of love for boomers too, because we're going to really miss them when they're gone. But in terms of, you know, kind of hands off raising your kids, um, you know, hey, we're going to have kids as our duty, but we're not necessarily going to want to be, and <laughs> we're going to be, you know, more hands off with our parenting style. And, you know, I, I feel like a lot of boomers now are kind of like, we need to crew, we just want to get out of here without everything blowing up. I say we want to cruise into the casket without too much problems, you know, but um, where was I? I lost my train of thought. Oh, talking about baby boomers. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think I was fortunate to have good parents. They weren't perfect. Um, you know, and a lot of my friends have common experience. There's kind of like, you know, particularly with boomer dads and kind of how they view the world. Uh, but there's a lot of young men. Like I, My dad was present. He was kind of like an old school football coach that would get in your face and, and you know, yell and scream. And, you know, occasionally I'd get the belt when I was a little kid. I mean, like we... You know, um, you know, he whipped my ass, you know, he, and it, let me, my dad was one of those guys that was good enough is not good enough. He expected the very best from me. When I came home and I brought A's, he's like, why'd you make a 90 here? What's wrong with you? Because he knew what I was capable of. You know, I mean, he, he wanted me to give everything I possibly had. So even though he might have been a little bit overboard in some ways, he was present. And what I notice now with a lot of these younger guys, and I, I guess their dads would be generation x um they're just i don't know what the hell their dads were doing i guess their dad i mean they don't have any kind of masculine representation of what a man is supposed to do how he's supposed to conduct himself and i feel like in a lot of these households you probably have fathers that you know they go earn a paycheck and they get bossed around by the wife and they watch ball games on the weekends and they just are totally checked out mentally. There's a lot of this going on. And um, they're, they're not doing any kind of hard parenting. Like, see, my dad wasn't afraid to be the bad guy. He didn't like it. And I remember him telling me later, he said, Alex, you don't know how much it hurt me sometimes to have to be the way that I was. But that was my mother was this was the nurturing, wonderful, like educator, sweetheart. Like she did that and he would go out and make things happen and make money. You know, he was really good at what he did. He was an industrial supply business. And, you know, she, you know, we knew that if we crossed my mother and, you know, she told him we were up shit Creek without a paddle. So I'm, I look back now and I'm glad I had that upbringing and I see younger guys and I don't think they had that with their fathers. And so in a certain sense, I'm kind of being, um, you know, a father figure or more like a big brother, I think to a lot of these guys, but, Joseph, I don't know what the hell happened. I because I, I feel like boomers might have been that last generation that um, weren't afraid to do some tough parenting. You know, it, it's it's something else because my own father's a member of the silent generation, and to say the least, I've never had the need to go around looking for a father figure. But so many people do, and a lot of folks mm -hmm. now, of course, the parents of Gen X and. Uh, scarily as hell, and I say this as a millennial, soon enough it'll be millennial parents uh, who have, you know, kids that are teenagers turning into adults. And uh, I don't know what happened to either 
Or I, although I do think that what you pointed out, this sort of uh, unfortunate family dynamic wherein these fathers are more or less uh, emasculated by the, the mother, if their father's even in the household at all, uh, and then they get lost in sports and the kids wind up being basically lost in a host of ways, that is probably the most common explanation of what happens, but you know, there's a hell of a lot of variation there, whatever it might be. Uh, it's not good. Uh, that's why I always encourage as few people to have kids as possible because I look around uh, at society. I've done this since I was a boy, and uh, it's rather frightening. It really is. And I, I guess I'm able to see this a bit more clearly because, number one, I don't have a big emotional investment in the area in terms of, like, heritage. Uh, I brought that up. But also, um, the, where I was born, mostly raised, and still live – as I think I also mentioned earlier in this discussion, it was settled pretty late in the 1880s. So I grew up seeing something being quote unquote old that was, you know, a Victorian house built in uh, the 1890s. Uh, and so it's a very young society, a very young settler society here in Central Florida, a British settler society. And uh, because it wasn't really that old, it made it easier to connect with on a very deep level, even if you didn't have roots there. Uh, and so that was always good for me. But a lot of other people, you know, they, they come from a different place, even if they have deep roots in the U.S., as we've discussed, they, they really uh, aren't terribly sure about where they came from. So they adopt these synthetic identities. And all this produces a very sort of lost, rootless generation uh, of people. Uh, and, and so it's it's uh, it's terribly sad. Uh, I think that people have to find their own own way and but say that is almost kind of flipped because you know what does that mean find your own way uh but that's the best i could come up with i will just say though that if people are interested really in understanding something about their heritage doing what alex has done and tracing his roots is obviously a great idea but uh, if they're fortunate enough to if they're really interested in western history in the u.s visit st augustine or williamsburg but st augustine is really more of, of, of the genuine article uh that the, these are very good ideas uh, it's almost like making a pilgrimage to one's Western routine if you're not of Spanish or English background. And of course, some, some of my ancestors came from both Spain and England, so I'm able to relate to that, <laughs> even though it's a, a bit of a right. troubled history on the Spanish side. But it's 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 just interesting because there is this uh, history in America. There is this heritage, but it's overlooked. But also, if you look at people in their own uh, daily lives, they overlook their own heritage. So you can't really be surprised when they, you know, adopt a ridiculous identity about, you know, some Microsoft Paint uh, conquistador avatar, rather than going to see what the conquistadors actually did in the country in which these people were born. One takes a lot more effort than the next, but I would argue uh, forcefully that the effort is worthwhile. Well, I think you make a great point. And... You know, I, I've talked a little bit about my travel to these other countries, but look, not everybody can do that. I've had some, you know, unique circumstances in my life that have allowed for me to do this. And I really enjoy it. But look, I've been to over 40 states. I mean, I have seen this country. I've been to the Rust Belt. I've been to the Southeast, Southwest. I mean, I lived in Los Angeles for a couple of years. I lived in Vegas for a year. I lived all over Texas. I've been in South Florida, you know, and with extensive travels, mostly related to business. And look, I haven't seen a lot of things in this country that I would like to see. And there is so much to see in this country like that you can access. So it's like, you know, you just need to get out there and, and, and make it happen. Um, you don't need to go and, you know, international travel. It's, it's expensive. 
not, you know, it's, it's not too bad, but I mean, it can be expensive and then you have to have the time off of work and all that stuff. I mean, and one thing I do see that's actually really encouraging, you know, since COVID hit, are, there are a lot of young people rethinking their lives and you're spending a lot of time outdoors. I have a brother um, who moved to Texas about a year ago, but he spent 16 years in the Pacific Northwest up in Portland before he finally had enough. He finally had enough about a year ago to, to move back to Texas, but he has seen the entire Pacific Northwest and a lot of the country in terms of camping and hiking and, you know, seeing mountain. I mean, he has done so much stuff outdoors. Um, I think that's a really healthy thing in living in an area where you can do stuff like that. And, you know, there, this is a, this is a beautiful country. And I have talked to people that have seen the entire world. And they say that the United States of America has the most diverse topography. Like this is the most beautiful place in terms of the range of what we have available. I mean, we've got like a Mediterranean climate in Southern California, which is unbelievable, right? Expensive, but it's available. Um, you know, you've got the forest of the you know Pacific Northwest. I mean, the Pacific, the whole Pacific coast is great. There's, so, you know, then you've got the Gulf and the Atlantic side and Southern Appalachia. You've got, you know, rustic New England. There's so many different things that this country has to offer. So start there. If you're somebody that's you know watching this right now and you're like, hey, that sounds great. I'd like to go visit my ancestral homelands. Try to see the country first, if you can. That's my perspective. Absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting because if you live in a place like Florida, which we both do, uh, the, the, the country and the world come to you. And that that's a bit much uh, for me, at least, because it is disorienting. There's no question about it. I go out. <laughs> it's used to be, a, 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 you know, a wasp dominated place, wasp culture place. Uh, and now I go out and I hear different languages every day without without failure. And you see people who you never would have seen before. Uh, and the world comes to you. It's not that you're going to the world. So in a way, I, I get to experience the United Nations without ever leaving my county. Uh, and, you know, it keeps things interesting. It honestly does, because uh, you never know what the hell you're going to run into. But uh, it, it definitely, if you're from a place and you see the change in your own short lifetime, as is the case with me, it's, it's you know, a bit much. But for a lot of other people who don't probably don't live in a place that sees as much change as you see in Florida, uh, absolutely. Uh, it, it, it's good to go out and travel, especially if you're from like a small town in Iowa or or wherever, uh, it's or even the mid-sized city in Iowa is probably basically the same. So it, it, it's really important to go out there and travel and see what the hell is going on uh, and to travel uh, more domestically before you go internationally. Uh, it, it's a great idea. I will say that going to an area that your forefathers came from is a very good thing. Uh, whenever I'm in the Caribbean Sea, uh, you know, obviously just being in the Caribbean is one thing, but actually going to the Caribbean Sea, it's really relaxing and nice in a way that the Gulf or the Atlantic isn't, not only because uh -huh, the water yeah. is better, but because my forefathers were running around there for hundreds of years throughout the Caribbean Sea, going from island to island. And so it, it, it is sort of a sense of homecoming, you know, they're obviously not indigenous to the Caribbean, but they were there for so long, they, they absolutely were part of the, the history, heritage, and culture of the region. Uh, and it's fortunate in my case that it's so close, especially to Florida. Uh, but for a lot of other people, it's much farther away, you know, where their folks came here from. Uh, and so, you know, it's going to be more expensive and more time consuming to travel there. But I think it's definitely worthwhile. Uh, I, I can say that from my own experience. 
Yeah, absolutely. And by the way, um, I went to Jamaica probably four or five months ago. Incredible. We've got a friend at our church who um, is, is been going to Jamaica for probably 30 plus years. And my big takeaway, because I'm not, I haven't been to the Caribbean. Like that was my first time um, before. And I mean, really wow. easy flight from South Florida. I mean, just a little over an hour. Oh yeah. And time is different in Jamaica. Time is totally different. I mean, it is slow. The days go on and on and on. And if you're in, and if you're engaging in some of this, which is very hard not to do, it goes on even longer, you know. But that was an amazing experience. Like going to Mount Zion, um, where Bob Marley lived and where he's buried. Um, you know, saw a, a pretty decent amount of Jamaica. Um, the Caribbean is very relaxing, very soothing. You know, and of course Ian Fleming. Uh, where he had his house, you know, we were actually very close to that as well. So totally different oh, vibe. Yeah. Yeah. Where Ian Fleming wrote the Bond novels. We actually saw that. And of course now I think it's Gold, a, you visited uh, Goldeneye, his house. That's outstanding. That it really is. Yep. Went to Goldeneye. And I mm -hmm. love the people of Jamaica. It's really very hospitable, great bread. If you go to Jamaica, you got to get like this, they have this heavy, dense white bread. That's incredible. Mm -hmm especially whenever it's hot just out of the oven. So if anybody's watching that, you go to Jamaica, remember to do that. Yeah, it, it really is amazing. Uh, it, the, the whole of the Caribbean is so diverse and so different island to island, you can't generalize about it. But there are some uh, commonalities, and one of them is time. As Alex said, time moves much slower there, uh, yeah. and so you just have to get acclimated to that. If you don't like it, you know, <laughs> it's not going to change for you, so good luck. I will say, you know, in addition to being in the Caribbean Sea, uh, one thing that I really love are coconuts from the Caribbean. And it's not like coconuts you get at a grocery store. You can get coconuts there. Somebody literally chops down with a machete. I've seen it from the coconut tree. And they hand you uh, the uh, the coconut and they cut a hole in it and you drink uh, the water inside. Uh, and it's really an amazing thing. Uh, and it's, you know, in my household, we still have a lot of coconut products. Uh, but uh, it, it, between the Caribbean Sea and coconuts, uh, it, 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 obviously it gives me a feeling of sort of being at home, but you can't understand why people live longer there than they do in the U.S., even though they have yeah. a more often primitive state of affairs uh, because of, you know, number one, having such a coconut and plant-based diet, uh, you know, coconuts are so healthy for you. Number two, uh, people aren't rushed, so they don't tend to develop hypertension and other things. Uh, and number three, they have a very sort of uh, marine-dependent life. Uh, so they eat a lot of fish, uh, crab, mm -hmm. things that uh, are pretty hard to go wrong with in terms of, uh, you know, uh, having a healthy diet. So that, that that's just, you know, when people start talking about the Caribbean, obviously, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to say a few things. Uh, but uh, that, that's just my take on it. Uh, yeah, I'm the first generation on my father's side not to have been born there in hundreds of years. So uh, wow. you know, I barely have a, yeah, I barely have a foot outside of it, just barely. But, uh, and that's good in a way because it goes back to roots and a lot of people in America being kind of rootless and not know who the hell they are. Uh, I always knew who I was. I'll put it that way. <laughs> so well, in, a, yeah. in a way, for a lot of people, that's not a good thing. But for me, it was because you never really... Uh, wound up not having an identity. Uh, please go ahead. No, I mean, one of the things I love about your account are your pic your picture of the day. It's always something related to Florida. It's, you know, kind of iconic and like just, you know, great scenery or some kind of architecture. And I just love that theme. Like you're a true Floridian. 
Like you're an old school Floridian. And I love that because I'm a newcomer here and um, it's a really unique state too, in terms of like the shoreline. You know, like I remember stopping in Destin on the way down. I mean, that's like an entirely different, you know, Panama City Beach and totally different, you know, deal. Oh, absolutely. Um, but, you know, the, the thing I love about South Florida particularly is it really is like there's a dynamism here. There's a vibe. I remember when I came to Miami for the first time, I think it was probably in 2013, 2014. And so, you know, I'd lived in L.A. for two years. And I thought, you know, this is the best America has to offer for what I'm looking for in something that is sunny, relaxed, laid back, incredible weather, beautiful people, great beaches. Like, this is it. You're not going to beat this. And then I remember, you know, driving across the causeway to Miami Beach, and I'm like, oh, man, this is unbelievable. Like, this is a whole different vibe. And then going to the Mondrian on South Beach and having a business meeting and getting to know South Beach, and I thought, this is really something special. And I will tell you, of everywhere that I've lived in America, I do love Miami the most. Um, and it, like I say that, that the weather is hot and humid, you know, for half the year. I mean, I'm some, you know, I, I went and walked, you know, two and a half miles today and I'm soaking wet. I mean, that, I mean, it's, it's hot um, most of the time, mm -hmm. but I absolutely love, I love this city. The people are great. Everybody kind of minds their own business. Nobody wants to know what you're like. People stay in their lane here. And there's there's a lot of interest, you know, back to your point, there are people from all corners of the world here, from, you know, from Latin America, from Russia, Ukraine, France, the Northeast, um, you know, Africa. I've met so many interesting. This city collects interesting people with great stories. You know, there's only a few places in America where you can meet somebody randomly. And then you end up going to a dinner party and have this incredible conversation and it goes on for five hours with all these other interesting people. Uh -huh. It's New York. It's Miami. Um, I, Los Angeles had that element. I've had this happen in San Francisco as well. But it's really, you know, you can count the cities on one hand, hand and, and Miami is one of them. Absolutely. And I've extensively visited New York City and Miami from the time I was a boy. Uh, and uh, I, 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 Miami, it, it, it is interesting. It's not like anything else in the U.S. You can say the same in New York, but yeah. Miami, uh, it is really an extension of Latin America, but it's not quite just Latin America because there's all these other attributes, a lot of uh, Europeans, non-Latin Europeans a lot of Arabs, a lot of this, a lot of that. Uh, and it, it's the sort of unique sort of synthesis uh, that's hard to describe. What I will call it is a transition zone between uh, yes. the Anglo world and the Latin world. It absolutely is. Uh, and you see that very clearly if you're Floridian from the Anglo Florida, if you will. Uh, and it's fascinating to me visiting there, even though I've gone so many times, since I was a boy, I can't even put a number on it. I mean, I've driven the whole city. It's, it's something else. Uh, but it, it, you always do see something new. It has an element to it that you don't find elsewhere in South Florida. I think I've told you on, on Twitter uh, in a public post that I like West Palm Beach better than Miami. Yeah. West Palm Beach is much more livable than Miami is. Uh, but at the same time, obviously, you don't have that same uh, dynamism that you have in Miami. So you see, it's not just a matter of South Florida. A lot of people lump everywhere in South Florida together, but you know, South Florida is different places for sure. And Miami is a world unto itself. 
Uh, and even if you never want to live there, as is the case with me, you can appreciate something about it. Uh, although I will say that the areas closest to the Bay are the ones that tend to have the most appreciable stuff, the Bay or obviously the Atlantic when you're on Miami Beach Island. I mean, the Bay and the Atlantic can be within sight of each other. So <laughs> it's it's not well, these a, are, a great deal of difference there. Yeah. I mean, these are big differences, though, because I, I, when, I, when I came to uh, Miami, I lived in you know on the Bay in, in Edgewater for about a year. Beautiful apartment, great view, you know, very busy area, lots of different people, made some great friends. But um, then we moved to the beach because all the prices skyrocketed and we're like, this is too expensive. And so let's not have a two bedroom when we're not using a bedroom. Let's actually just go to, you know, find a good bedroom. The beach is life changing. There's a huge change when you come to the beach. The beach is a different vibe. We live on the beach. I go walk in Surfside and in Val Harbor every single day, and it's life-changing for me. You know, I've seen all kinds of interesting people. I've seen Cindy Crawford and Randy Gerber, Ryan Seacrest and his girlfriend. I've seen Alex Clark, founder of Palantir. I've seen Ivanka Trump twice. My wife has seen Jared Kushner at the Four Seasons. Um, I've seen Larry Fink, founder of BlackRock. You never know who you're going to run into here. And... When you go to the beach, particularly this northern part of the beach, it really sorts for those people. The thing about Miami I like, and I, this is kind of with any great city, with New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, Miami, it's a series of enclaves. That's what makes a city great, is you can go to a particular enclave, like I'm going to go to the design district here in Miami, I'm going to get luxury shopping, um, I'm going to wow. see Instagram models, and I'm going to see people from all over the world here to go buy Gucci and look good doing it. Yeah, they're going to be strutting their stuff. Mm -hmm. And then I can go to Brickell if I want to go into something that's like kind of more urban Manhattan, young professional type environment with great restaurants. Mm -hmm. Then I can go to South Beach and I've got like the Art Deco on Ocean Drive. And so it's like then you go to the North Beach and you've got more kind of high end, high end retail at the Val Harbor shops. I mean, so there's all these little enclaves that kind of meet certain needs. And that's, in my view, what makes the city great and Miami has it. It absolutely does. And one of the, the nicest places to walk, it's not in the city of Miami, it's on Miami Beach Island, uh, is along the uh, well, along the beach, uh, not literally on the sand, but the, you, you take pictures of it all the time. There's a walking path between the uh, high rises and the beach uh, and Ball Harbor at the northern tip of Miami Beach Island. Some of the best pictures of sunsets and sunrises you'll get anywhere in florida uh it's uh, it, picturesque you know doesn't even begin to describe it i've walked these places that you're talking about uh, and they really are uh magnificent one really interesting place to walk around though in the summertime because obviously if you're out in the summer it's sunny at 3 15 p.m and at 3 20 all of a sudden there's lightning and there's rain coming down on you and your screw. Uh, the shops at Ball Harbor are just really beautiful to walk through. It, it, it's an experience. Uh, it, it's really, if you like mid 20th century modernist American architecture, which I'm not the biggest fan of, but this place is so beautiful that it makes it look extraordinary. Uh, I do recommend people check it out just to see this sort of architectural and capitalistic marvel. It's really amazing. I absolutely agree. That's what, This is one of the first places I came to 10 years ago in Miami. For whatever reason, I was drawn to Surfside Val Harbor right away. I know and this was 10 years ago, whenever it wasn't quite what it is now. Um, now, I feel like the northern part of Miami Beach has certainly it's exploding. Like South Beach is, is still good, but it's a different vibe. Um, 
on the holidays, it may not be mm-hmm. a place that you want to be whenever you're going to have a bunch of people coming in from out of town, like to say the least, because they block off the roads. That's another issue. Like you can't go turn off the main road. I've had that happen. So it's a whole different ball game. But, um, you know, here in Surfside, Bell Harbor, you know, you've got the Indian Creek, you know, become the billionaire's bunker where you've got Tom yeah. Brady, Giselle Bunchen, Jared and Jared and Ivanka, Jeff Bezos, um, and I think Julio Iglesias. You've got all of the elites kind of up here. I know some crypto people that don't that are ex- extremely successful, you know, that live in this area. They don't want to be known. Um, mm-hmm. I like being around these kind of people. And I like and I it, it, there's it, I, I really do. And the Bow Harbor shops, I think, is um, I, I remember going there for the first time and I thought this is really different. I don't really I don't want to say it feels European, but um, it's true luxury. It feels I, I really can't. There's there's no other retail center in the United States that's quite like this, and I've been to quite a few of them. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, you got the, it is. Uh, yeah. No, please go ahead. No, I mean you've got the koi pond and you've got the greenery. Um, just everything about it, it, it. It's a perfect setting, and it's a place that you want to spend money. That it is. Yeah, it, it really is. Uh, even if you just go there to walk around as I do, because I'm sort of like, I'm attracted to anything that has unique architecture that I find uh, aesthetically pleasing. If I don't know what the hell it is, I, I, if I see it, I will make it uh, my business to visit. And uh, it's great just to walk around. Even if you don't go there to spend money, you wind up getting something to drink. Uh, the uh, <laughs> I, I'm a big fan of tea, and I found tea there that, that I liked. So I was pretty surprised, and they give you free refills too, which is unique uh, for a place <laughs> like that. But the point is that <laughs> the shops about Harbor is very hospitable, and it teaches, I guess, you something about business, about how to do something that costs an astronomical amount of money. But uh, over time, it certainly has not experienced the decline of so many other retail centers had they just built as you obviously know uh, a new uh wing of it so this place is even in the era of e-commerce it is you know going fast and furious and it's never going to stop even if the united states seeks to exist there would still be a ball harbor shops and a ball harbor and a palm beach for that matter so you know these things actually are important to talk about because beyond anything to do with american politics they do stand the test of time. They're not going anywhere. Uh, and uh, that's sort of remarkable. The, the, these places provide something more than just a nice, you know, uh, area to spend time in. Uh, there's something sort of esoteric, as it sounds, eternal about them that I appreciate. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's something where, you know, if you think about the additions that they've done at the shops, um, you know, spent a ton of money, hundreds of millions of dollars, but they've maintained the aura and the mystique and everything about, you know, the original play. I mean, they've, they've maintained all of that. So um, it's going to be a great place. I mean, honestly, and I, it's, I'm sure it's why a lot of people, you know, pay a lot of money to live in these condominiums or to have a house up here in Surfside, Bell Harbor, because they want to go there. I mean, it's a, it's a family experience. I mean, we love going to Hillstone as a great chain restaurant, but my wife and I, it's one of those places where it's a limited menu and we know exactly what we're going to get every single time, and we love it. So, you know, we probably go there, I would say, every couple of weeks. You'll see us at the shops and the James Purse store. I love going there as well. But, I mean, it's just it's a fun place. It's just you want to go walk around and see people and maybe pop in a few shops and see what's new. I highly recommend it if you're in Miami Beach. 
Absolutely. Same here. And I will just, before we move on to something far less uh, fun, I will say that I highly recommend the restaurant at the Seaview Hotel in Ball Harbor. If anyone is ever around there, check it out. Uh, it, it's a very, very good restaurant. Uh, and I mean, it's a beautiful sort of mid-century uh I don't know if you call it Art Deco Hotel, but it's more of, I think it's more European, uh, more of like the continental style that it was built in. That'd be the best way of putting it. Uh, but really great place. Uh, anyway, now that uh, now that we're done talking about something uh, wonderful, talking about something uh, <laughs> miserable, uh, there is the situation yeah. in the Middle East, and it's extremely severe. And you, uh, as much as you love uh, South Florida or Miami, uh, you are planning on leaving uh, to embark on a new life in the Middle East. Uh, we'll, we'll get to that because, I mean, that's just fascinating. And so many Americans are, you know, leaving the country now, uh, too. So, you know, the whole digital nomad thing took off for a reason. And that was another yeah. change of, of that COVID brought. But anyhow, there people are talking understandably about the uh, the issues with uh, Israel and, and Palestine, particularly the Gazans. But what's taking place now is really sort of the resurgence of uh, jihadism. And a lot of people in the Middle East uh, are at risk, you know, as a result of this. Uh, there still are, and particularly Christian populations, uh, dispersed throughout uh, the Mideast. And a big population, obviously, are the Maronites. If you married into to a Maronite family, you are now uh, a Maronite, which is interesting because I never met anybody who converted to it before. So that's something else. And I grew up in an area that had has a Lebanese uh, Christian population, so I'm I'm not, by no means an expert on the culture, but I am at least passingly familiar with it. Uh, and the, the 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 Maronites are in a tough position because obviously Hezbollah has joined up with Hamas, and uh, they're both teamed up against Israel. But Hezbollah also has the goal of wiping out uh, the Maronites to have uh, Lebanon be a uh, one religion uh, Islamic theocracy. So what's taking place now in the Mideast is really uh, perplexing. It's, it's terribly unfortunate. Uh, one might say it's unavoidable, though, given the long-simmering tensions in the region. Uh, what's your take on, on what's going on with regard to the Middle Eastern Christians, obviously with a special focus on the Maronites? Yeah, I mean, okay, so I first went to Lebanon in, I think it was March of 2017. And then I went again a couple months later, you know, after and, and told my wife's parents that I wanted to marry her. And they knew that was going to mean that she would come back to the States, you know, um, which she did, you know, a few months later. And then we, um, I went back again in 2018, late 2018, we got married in a Maronite church, you know, in front of her family and friends. You know, like an official ceremony uh, when we got we actually got married in a, in a judge's uh, office, you know, to get the legal stuff, you know, get the legal process started. Um, then we actually did the official ceremony in Lebanon a year later and um, then didn't go for a while. And I've been back twice since. And so that's a, I think it was a year ago and a year before that. So, you know, we didn't go there for COVID. Um, you know, the finance they had a financial crisis in 2019. COVID hit, then they had the Beirut blast in August of 2020. And it's, I've gotten to know the country very well. And I've got friends that are Maronites, Orthodox, Shia Muslims. I don't, I'm not in, no Sunnis for whatever reason, but I've got a wide variety of friends. And what I can tell you is you will hear people within the same tribe have wildly different opinions about what's going on and what should be done. 
Like every conceivable position will be taken by people within the same tribe. It's crazy. And, um, and they all sound like they know what they're talking about. And so, you know, I've met, um, you know, some Christians that, and this is the thing too, I've got to be careful in what I say, because I am going to be, you know, I will go to Lebanon, I'm sure at some point in the future. And I will go to, uh, you know, obviously I'm going to Dubai, which is a little bit different, but um, I think there are a lot of Lebanese Christians that have learned to live with Hezbollah because they have to. Um, you know, there was a Lebanese Maronite leader that Bashir Jamal from the Jamal family, which were, they've been called tribal warlords, but they're one of the elite tribes, elite families in Lebanon, which there's a whole tribal, intertribal warfare thing going on there too. But oh. anyway, he was elected president in the early eighties and within a month of, of, uh, of being elected, he was blown up in an apartment bombing that killed him. And I think 26 mm -hmm. people in total. By a, Syri by a Syrian Maronite that was part of a National Socialist Party that did not like the fact that Jamal wanted to partner with the Israelis. So Jamal wanted the uh, Lebanon to be like a real, like have national pride, like a real nation state and bring everybody together. He did some some pretty tough things, you know, to, you know, to put himself in that position. But you know, he was blown up and his brother assumed the presidency, not the same type of person. And, you know, Lebanon later had a prime minister, Rafiq Hariri, who was a Sunni Muslim, you know, who had joint citizens or you know, dual citizenship with Saudi Arabia and in Lebanon. And I have a favorable view of him. You know, he was able to really, you now some people don't. I mean, the thing about Lebanon is people remember every single thing you did, good and bad. And a lot of times it's bad. <laughs> I mean, when it's so tribal like this, I mean, a lot of it's bad. And so, but, you know, just trying to take a measured perspective, you know, I think he did a lot of good things, but he was blown up in a car bomb in 2006. You can go walk by where he was sitting, having his coffee, you know, in the city center. And there's still a little memorial there for him with a picture of him and a roped off table and where he would sit. And he would really try to do the right thing. And, um, it's a very tough place to govern. And if you're someone that's a genuine reformer, you might get killed. And Hezbollah is in control of Lebanon. They are in control. Um, there is no, there's not, there's not a functional government right now. They, they cannot manage basic utilities in terms of, tr you know, processing trash, picking up and processing trash. Um, they, you know, the electrical grid is inconsistent. You know, many people have resorted, resorted to solar panel, panels or diesel power generators. Um, or neighborhoods will pay somebody that has a generator a high prices to provide electricity. You know, you have to have water shift to your house. This is tough stuff. Um, it, it's so tribalistic in such a small area. Um, and, and you can go all the way back, like, you know, 100 years to whenever the British basically drew up, you know, British and French kind of drew boundaries in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. And this is how it's supposed to go, that there are a lot of people that go back all the way there and say that the boundaries aren't right. You know, like this, it should have been drawn this way. So, you know, that's the whole thing. But um, Lebanese Christians and their view on Hezbollah is, Hezbollah has taken over the country and they don't have any representation anymore. But there are things Hezbollah has done in terms of fighting alongside Christians and keeping ISIS out of uh, from entering from Syria into Lebanon. And Lebanese Christians and 
Hezbollah actually fought alongside each other. So like there have been these positive interactions, but there's also been, but the general state of the country has deteriorated. And I've noticed from 2017 and 2018, when I would go to the airport, um, you know, the first few times, I didn't see a whole lot of Hezbollah, um, you know, posters or signage. Actually, I saw, I saw a little bit. But when I went back in 2021 and 2022, um, there was a lot more Hezbollah presence in terms of having posters of Hassan Nasrallah, of Ayatollah Khomeini, of um, Qasem Soleimani, you know, who Trump killed, the, um, the Quds commander yep. for Iran. So Iran is, you know, the Iran-Hezbollah connection has really taken over Lebanon. And Christians are in a very tenuous position. Like these are people that have been there for, you know, maybe 2,000 years. They have ties going back a long, long way. And again, they're connected to their land in a different way that like a lot of people in the West just can't really understand, particularly Americans. They can't really understand this. Like my wife's, uh, her, her father will never leave Lebanon. He survived a 15 year civil war. And if he gets blown up or killed in his house, then that's what it's going to happen because he's been through hell and he's never going to leave. He was 80 year old man. So um, Christians don't, I mean, Joseph, long story short of it is they don't really have a lot of recourse. They try to do a lot of different, and let me say this, there's things they've done that aren't the most palatable things either. Oh. Um, but they, they're in survival mode. You know, Lebanon, um, you know, the French basically, if we know post-World War One, handed it to the Lebanese Maronites to manage it. Um, there was a great period of peace and prosperity in Lebanon. The um, ruling class probably didn't do a good enough job working together to maintain the country. Um, the PLO was forced out of Israel in the mid I think early to mid-70s, into, um, into Lebanon, sparked a civil war. Things got out of hand. It's 15 years civil war. Lebanon's a different country. And they're hanging on now. You know, I mean, I'll, I'll give you, I'll just tell you, Lebanon is kind of over in terms of a nation state that's going to be able to have a functional government. It, uh, it, they had a, they, in, in late 2019, um, they had incredible hyperinflation financial crisis where basically the central bankers had stolen tens of billions of dollars over the course of 20 plus years. They were running a Ponzi scheme where they were giving depositors 12 and 13 percent interest on their deposits think about that a bank 12 to 13 percent so all of these lebanese were rushing to put money in the bank and these guys were stealing it and sending it overseas to the west buying real estate in manhattan and in paris and then basically everything goes haywire and people can't get their money out of the bank and the whole thing goes but so that was in my view that was the end um then you had the beirut blast in august of 2020 which decimated, I'm surprised, only 200 people died. I'm surprised it wasn't 2,000 or more because it was a, you know, almost like a mini nuke that went on. Remember that plume of smoke. Um, they have rebuilt certain air, certain parts, certain buildings, but the city center that had all of the luxury shops, the Tom Fords and the Gucci's and the Versace's, they're gone. So I don't know what Lebanon's going to do. It, 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 I don't it, it, know what they're going to do. Yeah, yeah. Um, I have no I idea know. either. Which is, yeah. I mean, one thing I want to I want to make very clear here. 
is that this needs this needs to be said because I've seen people misrepresenting the state of Lebanon. Um, Lebanon is has 19 different religious sects. These people have generally like had to find a way to live together. It's always been a chaotic part of the world. Um, but Hezbollah is not Lebanon. Okay, like they they are the, the most powerful group. Um, they have the most powerful military. And they're increasingly, you know, running the show, but they are not all of Lebanon. You have a million and a half Christians there. You have a Druze population. You have, you have Shia Muslims that are not that are not cool with this. And I actually know some of them that have spoken up with very large platforms, like very well-known people. And I'm not going to say their name, but I mean, I've sat down with them many times. I know who they are. They're well-known. They have celebrity status, and they have spoken out against Hezbollah. And, and had personal threats as a Shia Muslim. So I just want everybody to understand that, is that this is not a, you know, Hezbollah is running the show, but a lot of people can't do anything about it. They don't like it, but there's nothing they can do. Absolutely, and I'll just say, uh, you know, I. A lot of people in the West do tend to conflate uh, Hezbollah with Lebanon. I'm always careful not to do that. I never did that because, as I mentioned, I knew Lebanese uh, Christians growing up, and uh, obviously they were not what uh, anything to do to do with Hezbollah. But Hezbollah gives a, a terrible name to uh, the country, although the country, as you mentioned today, is highly dysfunctional. So it's this never-ending series of problems there. Uh, I will say that one thing I find fascinating is that uh, Beirut, not just Beirut, but basically all uh, Christian areas of, Le of Lebanon, but especially the Maronite ones, uh, they were the, it, it, bizarre as it might sound, proto-Israel in that you had this westernized, very Europeanized outpost in the Middle East uh, that was very, very functional. Uh, you know, people look yeah. at Tel Aviv today and it looks like a, a Western metropolis because it really it is. But Beirut was that long, long before Tel Aviv. And now look what happened to Beirut. And I've always been fascinated by Lebanon because the, uh, the, the, the a lot of people there were able to build this sort of quasi-Western society. And I obviously saw it in movies and, uh, you know, pictures uh, growing up. And it, it's basically gone now, but it's a terrible thing that's gone, number one. But number two, it's just so uh, outstanding that this thing ever existed to begin with. And the more I learned, obviously, about uh, about the, the Lebanese Christian population, the more after a certain point they almost became indistinguishable from the French colonizers. Uh, they even had French names, a lot of them. It's really just this fascinating history that even though it has nothing to do with my uh, heritage, uh, it, it, it's really, uh, I, I guess it might be, say, related in some distant way, not genetically related, but in terms of having some sort of background that goes back to the Middle East, but that'd be basically it. But what, I'm, uh, what I think is much more interesting about the situation Situation with the with Lebanese Christians is that they were able to have this westernized society that was highly functional until it was destroyed by people who, you know, to be blunt, could not build the same thing themselves. And it seems that envy really drove the destruction more than anything else. Uh, and so you get what you have now, rubble. Uh, it, it, and it, it's absolutely, uh, it's heartbreaking. It really is. And this is coming from someone who has, you know, no cultural or genetic relation to this, but even seeing it yeah. as an outsider, it's still heartbreaking because you see all that's been lost. Yeah, I mean, listen, 
Lebanon, you know, was the pearl of the Middle East, you know, the Switzerland of the Middle East. You know, it was um, an incredible place. And you can go look at pictures back in like the 50s and 60s and 70s. I mean, this was really a spectacular, you know, tourist destination for Europeans, for Middle Easterners. It was it was really unique. And I think, you know, the you know, when the Christians had a real say, um, you know, it was a very secular culture. I mean, where everybody could kind of live in harmony. And I think that Christian societies have the ability to provide that secularism where Muslims that are more cosmopolitan can enjoy you know, the fruits of that. And so like this whole Arabization of the Middle East that's been taking place, you know, has certainly affected Lebanon. Um, and it's really sad because these people generally were able to, they made it through a civil war, you know, things were improving and now they're in this position. And the one thing that I kind of take away from it is, you know, by the way, you know, there's 14 million Lebanese diaspora. So there's there's way more people living outside the country than there are in it, you know, Lebanese. And they're living in the greatest population is in Brazil. Um, you know, you have quite a few in America. You have them in Canada, but they also have quite a few in France because they're Francophiles. I mean, my wife, her last, you know, she speaks three languages, Arabic, French and English. And she loves all things France. She loves Paris. She loves the south coast of France. And when I would rave about Southern California, she goes, Alex, you've never been to the south of France. You don't know what you're talking about. Like, that's better. You know, I mean, so um, and I think the French really partnered with the Maronites because they were going to be a reliable partner. And there was and I think the, and my understanding is the French actually did this, you know, in a lot of their colonies is find a group that would be a suitable partner for them that they could you know, take on French culture and values to an extent. And the Maronites were very good at that. You know, these are very like learned, erudite people wherever you go. And when I, I didn't, I really wasn't aware of uh, the range of, of the Lebanese until, you know, marrying Leah. I knew they were beautiful women. You know, I saw George Clooney marry his wife. And I thought that's, how do you find a woman like that? You know, you got to get pretty lucky to find one here. But um, when you look at, you know, Daryl Issa, who was the richest man in the United States Congress, you know, the guy from, San, I think he's from San Diego or Orange County. You know, he's worth almost a billion dollars. He's Lebanese German. Um, you look at Richard Rainwater, one of the great investors from Texas and a multi-billionaire and a guy that made a lot of other people rich. He's of Lebanese descent. Um, you look at Carlos Hilu Slim, the richest man in the world, formerly richest, richest man in the world and living in Mexico. You know, I thought he was Mexican. No, he is 100% Lebanese Maronite. So um, when you, you know, you look at Carlos Ghosn, you know, who ran um, Nissan and Renault, I think, uh, you know, at the same time concurrently. Um, then he had to leave Japan because he got in trouble. And remember that whole story, but mm -hmm. Lebanese. So these people are really unique in their ability to um, excel wherever they go. But unfortunately, that brain drain, you know, has been from Lebanon has been a gain for other places, which is a little bit upsetting because you would love to see people make their own country the best it could possibly be. But there's just increasingly um, less of a place for Christians in Lebanon. And some of some, some the ones that are there now, Joseph, I don't they want to stay because so many people have left over the years. I think the ones that are there really are going to stay there. But um, you never know how bad things get. I mean, if this war spills, you know, it, it's it's already happening in the southern part of Lebanon. If that, you know, keeps moving north and you start having things happen in Beirut, you might see a, a, a sizable exodus of Lebanese Christians.
Yeah, and, and I mean, really, who could blame them? Even though they're very, uh, very tied to the land, which is you know understandable. People think about Europe being the old world, but the Middle East is the even older world. And uh, people leaving their uh, their ancestral home there, it has to be unthinkable uh, by and large. I, I will say that there's no question because I've seen it for myself that uh, the Lebanese in the diaspora, particularly from what I've seen, uh, the Christian population, very highly accomplished. They became, in my neck of the woods, lawyers, politicians, uh, entered the judiciary. So very, you know, uh, very much go-getters, achievers. In a way, they remind me of Jews, which is really, uh, uh, it, it, it's quite a bit, it's a compliment. Uh, so it, it's 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 really something. I, I find the, the whole Lebanese uh, culture, there's not a single Lebanese culture, obviously, but the series of cultures in Lebanon uh, to be uh, something else. It kind of tells you that multiculturalism uh, on, uh, uh, you can't make a society out of multiculturalism. It's going to produce conflict, although the situation in Lebanon is an extreme one. It's not just multiculturalism failing, but the uh, inherently failed nature of a multicultural arrangement or failure to be, one might say. Uh, no question that if you try to build a society without a common culture, I'm putting this kindly, uh, without some sort of shared identity, without a uh, single language spoken between the people, you're going to have parallel societies. And Lebanon has had parallel societies for some time. And it doesn't take much to turn this already difficult situation into something something catastrophic, which is what you see now with Lebanon not having a functional state. Although this works well, obviously, for its Christian population, because there is a functional Hezbollah government, uh, you know, the Christians would be in a state of even worse problems than they are now. And that's saying something, because they have, as you've been mentioning, big issues. So it's just really uh, fascinating stuff. Something else, I think, with regard to uh, to Israel, is that uh, most Lebanese Christians have a low opinion of Israel. And uh, the reason for that is actually one I can understand. This is coming from someone who has a high opinion of Israel. Uh, all of the, uh, the, the various Israeli military campaigns against uh, Palestinian jihadis resulted in a lot of Palestinian Muslims being thrown out into surrounding countries. And today, these countries don't want anyone from the Gaza Strip. No refugees whatsoever. You can understand why that is. Uh, but uh, a lot of these uh, Palestinian Muslim refugees were, you know, rather fanatical religiously, uh, to be blunt, not of, I've been talking about this, not the most intelligent group. Uh, they found their way into Lebanon. Uh, they were welcomed with open arms by the Islamists there for the purpose of uh, demographically overpowering the Christian populace. Yeah. So you can understand understand why the Lebanese Christians are not at all fond of Israel because of uh, it's not so much uh, dislike for Israel being there. It's the dislike for what Israel has done with regard to the demographics of Lebanon. And that is seriously bad news for the Lebanese Christians. No two ways about it. Although, as I also have learned, some Lebanese Christians became very fond of Israel because Israel saved them in the 1980s from Hezbollah attacks wherever it was possible near the Israeli border. So uh, obviously there's a diversity of opinion there, and that goes back to what you're saying about intra-tribal uh, differences of opinion. But, but uh, it's really interesting. I mean, nothing is as it seems in the Middle East, and you certainly see that with Lebanon, uh, the peoples inside Lebanon, and how the country has related to other places such as Israel. I mean, it's a Rubik's Cube. And the more you learn about it, the more complicated it gets. Like I try to take in as many sources as I possibly can, whether it's online, whether it's in Telegram or X or you know, WhatsApp you know, what's messaging with people I know. 
And it just, it runs the gamut. I mean, there are, you know, there are things of which some Lebanese Christians look at Israel as like what they might like to work together, but they can't now. That's the whole thing. They can't do anything now. Like that, understand that's where they are. Um, but it, it's a wide, and the thing is interesting, you said that, you know, Lebanese Christians are a lot like Jews. They absolutely are. I mean, I remember telling my priest, I said, you guys are kind of like low-key Jews. And he laughed. And, you know, Jews are a little bit louder. Um, Maronites are a little bit more under the radar, but very similar. And in some cases, even like physically, you know, very much the same. Um, so it's, it's interesting. Um, I don't know where they go from here. Uh, it, it's just such complicated I don't know what they're going to do. They're waiting and watching and praying and hoping for the best. You know, now one thing I will say is they are. um, They're getting fatigued with West with the West. You know, that's one thing that I'm I'm, you know, hearing from some people there in terms of like, here we go again in terms of like, you know. The U.S. getting involved. I think they like to handle their own affairs on that side of the world without the U.S. being involved. I think there's a lot of angst about like American intervention. They're getting tired of it. Sure. And that's a general theme, by the Absolutely. way, that, that goes beyond just Lebanon. But I've talked to people in Africa and all over the world, and it's kind of like all of the noise that we're hearing right now on social media. And we're all consumed with this, Joseph. I mean, you know what X is like right now. I mean, it's just a never-ending stream of content about what's going on in Gaza and in Israel. And in Lebanon now, over in that part of the world, they're not, I mean, they're paying attention, but it's not as emotional. It's very emotional right now Mm -hmm. here in the West. Like we are having Mm -hmm. a lot of tough conversations about like, what do we really believe? What are we doing here? Um, You know, we've got Palestinian protests all throughout the West now. And then we've got other people that are, should have no real reason to get behind the Palestinian cause. But they're using it as a vehicle to express anti-colonial, anti-Zionist, anti-Jewish, anti-American views. And while those things are separate, they're being lumped together. That's dangerous, mm-hmm. right? And I'm sure you've observed that as well. I mean, and, and, and mm-hmm. <laughs> but anyway, it's there's there's a lot of there's been some. This is as rough as I've seen um, X in a long time. And one thing I I talked about the other day is I feel like since 2020 and we had this timeline shift, we've had these fault lines Mm -hmm. that have fractured friendships and longstanding relationships. And it's been one thing after Mm -hmm. the next and then after the next, after the next for three and a half years. You know, it was Mm -hmm. it was COVID. It was George Floyd. It was BLM. It was the election. It was January 6th. It was Afghanistan. And now it's this. And people that um, you know, relationships are being tested. Like if I were a Jewish person right now. And let's say I'm like, I don't like everything that Israel is going to do in terms of just we're going to go into Gaza and. Disproportionately overwhelm these people with what's happened to us, because we can we're going to do it. If I didn't agree with that and I say that, I might have people within my own tribes to come after me or, or get angry with me, hmm. you know, and say like, hey, no, 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 no. Like, so I think there is a lot of pressure and there's a lot of emotion that's wrapped up in all this. And I'm personally trying to 
be as objective as I possibly can. As somebody that, um, you know, obviously I have a lot of Jewish friends. Um, I've got, you know, friends and relatives in Lebanon. I don't have any, you know, know anybody that's Palestinian, to be honest with you. But I'm just trying to take all of this in and process it and try to maintain an objective perspective, you know, and care about the people that I care about. And if they want to reach out to me and have a conversation, and I've had that happen, I mean, like from all sides. But um, man, emotions are running really high. Mm-hmm. What do you think? They absolutely are. And I think, absolutely, no, I agree entirely. Uh, and as you know, I'm tend- I tend to be rather circumspect about how I present my views on Twitter, although sometimes I just go out there and say something uh, reasonably inflammatory for the fun of it. But you have to be very careful about, you know, being uh, any kind of inflammatory now because it is a very difficult, uh, tremendously difficult state of affairs. Uh, one thing, though, I think that it really is important to discuss is why people in the West uh, are supporting a side that's clearly not their own. And uh, actually, the, the examples that I bring up are not Jewish, despite you know this thing having to do with Israel, the, the conflict between Israel and Gaza. I mean, uh, the one example is uh, Mia Khalifa. Uh, you know, it's not yeah. her real name, but uh, she is uh, a, a Maronite, uh, or at least a Maronite background. Uh, porn star, and she said something that even though I'm of no Lebanese background, it absolutely disgusted me. It was like something I had to keep rereading to make sure I was getting it correctly. She came out and took the side of Hamas, uh, and or you know, she had come out and say Hamas, but effectively it was Hamas. Uh, and she claimed the Palestinians were her people, which was absolutely shocking to me because as I learned, her father fought with the Lebanese forces, and even I know what the Lebanese forces are. It's uh, now it's a political party, but it used to be a militia that would repel right. Islamist attacks, uh, especially uh, Palestinian Islamist attacks. Uh, and yet she's calling the Palestinians her people and taking their side when they're aligned with Hezbollah. And obviously these Palestinian jihadis would wipe every Maronite off the face of the earth in a heartbeat if they could. And it, it, it actually was like nauseating to see somebody do that in public, uh, do that period. And then you have people who are on the quote unquote based pro-white right in the U.S., and they are taking the side uh, of third worldism, and Palestine is just an example of that. But they somehow equate the struggle between um, yeah. white Europeans and Palestinians. Uh, meanwhile, every serious European ethno nationalist is hardcore against the side of Palestine. Either they're not an member of Israel, and there's obviously a lot of diversity of opinion on that uh, among European nationalists. Uh, but uh, nobody really liked the Palestinian cause at all. Uh, but yet you see these quote-unquote pro-white rightists in the U.S. who basically want to have a situation wherein Israel becomes a, a, a Palestinian state, which would cause a massive refugee crisis, and millions of jihadis being sent into Europe by literally by the boatload. And that's not to say the, the damage it would do to Arab Christians. So I, I see these people taking these bizarre sides and they make no sense to me. Uh, and it, I think this really says something more about the West than it does the Middle East, where you have, this goes back to what we were saying, this strange situation where people are led to uh, develop identities that really don't make a lot of sense. Uh, they have these synthetic uh, uh, personas, if you will, and the internet that absolutely makes this easier than it ever could have been otherwise. Uh, and it's not good. It, it's not good. And it's most acutely no. felt among those under 40. Uh, it's actually scary because some of these people, I'm wondering if these quote-unquote base pro-white rightists could one day become jihadis themselves. I think a lot of them could. I think they could give up the cause of being pro-white, pro-Western. I mean, 
listen, if you're taking the side of Hamas, you're already anti-Western, period. So I, I don't think there's much daylight between that and some of these people actually becoming like uh, the people who the Maronites fought against. So unfortunately, I think it can happen. Yeah, I'm alarmed by what I see. You know, and I don't know where when you know where rhetoric meets reality because a lot of people talk a big game and then it's like, what are they actually going to do? But um, the fact that they are trying to like channel something that has nothing to do with them and like expressing their views about like how bad things are here or all the mistakes that have been made. I don't know. It's just I, I don't understand it. I mean, I, I guess I do understand why they you know why they're upset. But that's not the way to manifest it. Like you got to do something constructive within your own life. And like I'm not going to go back and talk about the guilt for too long. But I mean, it's kind of like guys, sure. you got to make something happen in your own life. Like you got to move the needle, and you've got to be around people that want to help you out. And you're spending all of this time online, and you're taking up these causes that have nothing to do with you. And to be honest with you, you don't really understand, because my view is. Look, if you haven't been to that part of the world and interacted with the people, you know, I kind of have to take what you have to say with a grain of salt because yeah, I think you really need to be there. Now, look, there's a lot of smart people out there that, you know, have views that are, you know, could be very good that haven't been over there, but there's something different whenever you've been over there and really get it. And um, I, I'll be honest with you, I'm sad about all this. Like, my wife is very sad. You know, I mean, like, it's she's got a heavy heart right now because. You know, she's got family over there and what they're potentially going to go through. Obviously, it kind of changed up our plans, but it's like there's a lot of, you know, innocent people that are going to die from all of this, you know, on either side. And, you know, I guess my whole thing is I don't really, um, you know, obviously terrorism of any kind and killing women and children is unconscionable. I think that goes without saying, you know, but then there's also the side of like, okay, you know, we're going to take. Uh, what's what's a proportional response to that and how do you identify now one thing i do want to say is that um my wife does you know recall the 2006 israel hezbollah war and she remembers you know fighter jets going overhead like hearing the jets and you know drop bombs dropping the israelis were very careful to target certain areas where there were going to be hezbollah targets and they didn't hit christians like that's like they were very they were precise and careful about what areas that they struck, and that was appreciated. I just want to like make that clear. Um, I guess my concern is you're just worried about this thing, you know, going parabolic and everybody getting involved. And Hezbollah, you know, they've got 130,000 rockets pointed at Israel right now in southern Lebanon, but they also have people spread all over the country. I mean, they do. There's certain parts of Beirut where they have a lot of people. Um, you know, in the Baca Valley, you know, near Baalbek, I remember going out there and, and going and watch, you know, seeing the Roman ruins and I had people trying to sell me a Hezbollah t-shirt. I mean, they've got a heavy presence there. So, um, you know, I'm serious. I, I remember thinking, you know, this would be a, a kind of an interesting memento, but I don't want to be checked through security with this thing. <laughs> I'm not, I don't want to do that. So I, I said, no, thank you as nicely as I possibly could. Um, but anyway, the concern is if this thing were to really I mean, Joseph, I am very concerned. I, I, I'm hopeful and optimistic that cooler heads prevail, but everything I see in terms of rhetoric is escalating. Mm -hmm. Everything. Mm -hmm. You know, so. Absolutely. And obviously. It, it's a terrible problem. Yeah, I mean, I, I have a question for you, and it's something I've been thinking about sure. is I feel like right now 
the U.S. is in the process of being moved out of the Eurasian continent or certain parts mm -hmm. of it um, with what's going on with Russia and Ukraine and now with this conflict to where I, I think that China, Russia and Iran, you know, that's an emerging axis. And I recently, you know, we have a guy in the guild that said, you know, you realize that, you know, China bought Iran in 2019. They committed to $500 billion of investments over the next 25 years in terms of infrastructure, roads, pipelines, trains, et cetera. So that's a real financial commitment. And I just think like they, they, these, these folks have to be working in concert with each other and what they're going to do. And I feel like the world is kind of fed up with, with the U.S. right now. And that they're going to bleed us. They're going to bleed us out in, in Ukraine. We're going to be caught up, you know, in the Eastern Mediterranean. And then you could look at like next year, something happening with Taiwan. Mm -hmm. it, it's very concerning. It's tremendously concerning. I think that the U.S. what but obviously happens that's been overextended. Uh, and there's less and less appetite among the American people for any sort of boots on the ground war, particularly after Iraq, but especially after what happened in Afghanistan, the terribly. And I don't think the U.S. should have been colonizing Afghanistan, essentially. But uh, the way that America left was as embarrassing and degrading as it gets. Uh, as a matter of fact, a lot of the weaponry being used against uh, Jews and Christians in the Mideast right now is American weaponry that was left in Afghanistan and it was funneled eastward towards the Mediterranean. Uh, so this is, it, 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 the, the American public is very demoralized. And as you said, the world is increasingly demoralized with America and with the, the whole NATO order, moreover. Yeah. And I think that what happens is that China becomes, I mean, this has been coming for some time, becomes the, the new uh, bully on the block, if you will. Uh, and they're far less interested in humanitarianism than the U.S. ever was or Europe. Uh, and uh, I think they will wield power in a coalition with Russia and India, although the Indians and the Chinese have a lot of differences. I don't think it'd be an easy coalition, but I think they would have uh, a, a certain economic power sharing agreement, probably as time passes. Uh, but I think India and China will be rivals for who ultimately claims power in the emerging world order. I Think that that's where the energy is going to be. Some would, you know, you brought up Iran. That's interesting because Russia, especially since the issues with the Ukraine, since it got sealed off from the Western economy, has tried to cozy up with Iran, not necessarily because Moscow has any love for the government of Iran, but because they need uh, a market for their goods. Number one, the Russian market. Number two, the Russians need to import certain natural resources they can't get from continental Europe anymore. Uh, and so Iran uh, is, is a willing partner. But Iran is too unstable. The government there is too unstable. Uh, the people there are unstable in a good way because they're fed up with what's going on. A lot of them are, at least. Uh, and so Iran is not a partner that any country can count on over the long run. That is, uh, even though Iran is funding the lion's share of problems for Westerners in the Middle East, that is something done, I think, uh, as basically the action of an animal uh, trapped in a corner lashing out. And uh, the Iranian government, uh, I, I, I think, will probably not be able to keep this up for uh, you know an indefinite period, for a few more years maybe. But uh, the situation in Iran is very uh, unstable. I've said that before. It bears repeating. And I don't think Iran will be a serious partner in whatever new post-American arrangements coming up. But I think that China and India 
will have a limited alliance in terms of building up a sort of alternative to the West, a WEF alternative, if you will, economic order. Uh, but I don't think it's going to be any sort of political or cultural fraternity. I think that when uh, America is finally sidelined along with NATO and they're both left in their, within their respective borders, uh, what's going to happen is that India and China go after each other viciously. That might be the, I don't think there'll be another world war now, but if there is another world war in the century, I think it'd be between the Indians and the Chinese. And in that case, it would be interesting because a weaker America and a weaker Britain and a weaker NATO would probably allied behind uh, India. Russia really doesn't have the resources to take on uh, the West and the East at the same time. It's pretty crazy. Even though it's a massive country with a lot of, you know, uh, uh, a lot of wealth, it, it, demographically, uh, it has issues of its own. Uh, so I think the Russians would probably fall in behind the Chinese. However, uh, aggravatedly, given their fraught history with each other, uh, and it would be interesting to see what becomes of Africa. That that'd be a really big question. Yeah. Well, Latin America. So I think that the uh, this century will be, uh, particularly as the middle and end of the century come into view, it'll be a contest between the Indians and the Chinese. And what you see now is the American-led NATO order sort of getting, it hasn't been routed yet, but it definitely is winding down. And I think within 10 years' time, uh, America is going to be unambiguously, uh, you know, no longer anything, even uh, in the vague sense of a world policeman. Uh, and I didn't like America being the world police, and so I'm not sad about that. But the way this is happening for America is uh, very uh, disgraceful. And, and what happened in Afghanistan, the way it ended there, uh, the American uh, occupation, essentially. Uh, and I don't say occupation negatively, even though I never liked it, because I don't think America was abusing the Afghans at all. America was trying to basically elevate their situation, but there's only so much you could do with a population like that. Uh, and uh, what happened with America and Afghanistan, it's no surprise that since that uh, terrible event, that's when Biden's approval rating uh, started going down. That's when mm -hmm. the last time he had a positive approval rating was right when uh, the Afghan incident took place. But when the fallout of that started, he went underwater and his approval has been underwater since then. And I'm sure it will continue to be underwater. Uh, and so I, I think that there is a loss of confidence in America domestically and abroad. And I think what we're seeing now is the stage being set for the great conflict of the 21st century being between India and China. I very much would support India over China because I have seen what the Chinese, I have a a real interest of sub-Saharan in, in sub-Saharan Africa, uh, as you know, and I think some people, most people know, uh, the late King of Rwanda bestowed a knighthood and a barony on me. Some of the biggest honors a fellow could ever hope for. Uh, and, and obviously, you know, I, I do have some idea of what's going on in uh, sub-Saharan Africa, and the way the Chinese are taking over is, you know, they're doing what's best for them, but it's a form of uh, colonialism that comes without the idea of setting up a society that elevates the people. It's basically just wealth extraction. And the Chinese will do that across the world, whereas the Indians uh, are more long-range thinkers. Uh, they definitely are people who have more of an honor code than the Chinese government does. Uh, and so I think that India would be, uh, I would much rather see it triumph uh, over the century. I think, to be blunt, that'd be better for Western people than the Chinese doing so. Uh, anything to say here, Alex? Yeah, um, it's just something interesting. So, you know, I remember going to Jamaica and talking to people there and China, 
um, built a huge, like a, this huge super highway connecting parts of the island that they weren't able to access before. Because, you know, Jamaica is basically just so mountainous and not really good roads. But China came in there and made a real, you know, they issued a loan, made a huge infrastructure investment. The people, you know, they're not everybody loves it, but generally people like it. The people that I talk to are happy with what China has done. You know, when I talked to a guy in Botswana today, um, and he was talking about how Botswana has, is a very favorable climate for entrepreneurship and enterprising people, and he spoke favorably of China. Um, it's interesting, like in America, you don't really real, you realize the full magnitude of China. I remember going to Budapest, Hungary last year, and there's the Bank of China everywhere. So, I mean, but I don't hear people really angry about it. Like we're, we feel threatened by China. Like we're uncertain with everything that's going on right now and what they're going to do next and what we're going to go do in the South China Sea and with Taiwan. But the people I talk to that are doing business with China, where China's making infrastructure investments, don't seem upset about it. Now, this is purely anecdotal. So I, I mean, I'm sure there are other people that have different views. But it seems like China's, you know, and it, so it's different. I mean, China is exporting, like they're building real things. Like you look at all of the consumer electronics and injection molded products and plastics and things that we get from China. I mean, basically all like, you know, kind of lower end mid-range consumer goods, you know, hard goods, they're doing a lot of stuff like that. So they're like making real stuff, but they don't have any cultural exports to speak of. None. Mm -hmm. Like people don't want to be mm -hmm. Chinese. They don't want to listen to Chinese music. They don't mm -hmm. want to, you know, Chinese sport. No, I mean, there's just nothing there. Um, so, but America mm -hmm. is unbelievable in our cultural exports. I was talking mm -hmm. to a guy that, um, a Pakistani guy that lives in Riyadh. I mean, we were talking a little bit about how Riyadh is absolutely exploding right now and it's going to be the next boom town in the Middle East. You know, like it's, they, they want to supplant Dubai and they have the money to do it. The Saudis have a lot more money than the Emiratis. Uh, but he was telling me about Tyga, the American rapper, um, you know, going over to Riyadh and people are like fascinated by it. He's making a lot of money over there. So um, American culture is fascinating to other people. Joseph, sometimes I don't fully understand it either, by the way. Like these Europeans <laughs> wow. come over here and they're like, man, I love Austin, Texas. Austin's so amazing. And I'm thinking, you're from Amsterdam. Why are you care about like, why is Austin so good? Like exactly. I lived in Austin for 10 years. I don't think it's very good. I mean, I think it had its, mm -hmm. better, you know, it had its best days. And uh, but there's something about American culture that is fascinating. And in my travels, you know, which are pretty good and I'm going to keep traveling all over the world. Um, there is an American dynamism. There is something really unique about this mm -hmm. place that other places don't have. Like when you go to Lebanon and you go see these you know, museums and you see these great ruins, you realize these incredible civilizations, these incredible people built this and they are so long gone mm -hmm. and it's not going to be like that again. Not for thousands of years. Maybe it could be something great again. You know, when a civilization goes by the way it gets over man that's it and what i will say about america is and this is kind of like a white pill for everybody that's watching this is that we do have incredible dynamism and ability to remake ourselves and that's got to be like the uh, the optimistic scenario and that you know you know the peter zion case and that you know there are these other people that are emerging that are going to be something like china 
but um, they're going to have a lot of their own struggles. And there's and there's a realistic possibility that we are the last man standing. You know, like that could happen. Now, I don't. I'm not saying I endorse that. Or that I'm sure that's what's going to happen. But um, you know, other people have a lot of problems too. Other countries, it looks like they have their shit together, but then you talk to someone that really knows it, and they're like, no, they're having real issues. So here in America, we have great infrastructure. We have a lot of great intellectual capital. Um, we have a lot of people that want to come here from all over the world. This is still a very desirable destination. And they want to go buy very expensive high rises and houses here in places like Miami. That's a whole other thing. I remember people telling me people with means do not want to see the U.S. dollar die off. They do not want to replace the dollar. It doesn't matter if they're Absolutely. Russian. They want the U because they're making investments in this country based on the dollar strength. So they want the dollar to to so i don't know we have so much momentum and inertia and just kind of capital here um we would have to be the stupidest people ever to screw this up we've got to find a way through we have to i hope there is one and we're going to get in and this will be the last item we bring up which is your uh leaving the country but uh i i guess two things here uh, one is just a statement, and another is a question I'm going to ask about Americans, the American uh, youth. Uh, now, yeah. I, I, you are so correct when you bring up that there is a dynamism in America, and it is unique. I see that in Florida. You see a lot of it in Florida. Florida is a place that people, as we were saying before, are attracted to, so it's going to produce dynamism. I mean, the outcomes could be positive or negative, but it's going to be dynamic, that's for sure. But there are parts of America you can visit, like the Rust Belt. And I spent my middle school years, a lot of my middle school years in the Rust Belt. And there is, even though it's nowhere near as old of a culture as you find in Lebanon, not even comparable. Although, interestingly enough, there are quite a few Lebanese-descended people in the Rust Belt. But anyway, uh, you, you, if you go to the Rust Belt, you will see closed factories, very nice old homes that are either lived in by old people or they're abandoned. Uh, you will see towns that used to be borderline, you know, mid-sized cities. Now they're just, you know, like vacant buildings that are 15 stories tall. And you can see something that used to be great and it no longer is. And this is interesting because before you're talking about America, you'd be able to see so much here, so much diversity in terms of what you can experience. Well, you can sort of experience the new developing, uh, and I don't mean that in the sense of poverty stricken, but in the sense of of just a dynamic world. You see that like in Miami, or you can go up to Ohio and visit some Rust Belt town and see something that really used to be great. And now it's dominated by meth heads and there's no real future there. So America really does have a lot of stuff people can see that can inform them about many different ways of living. And I think it's advisable for people to go check all this out. I'm fortunate that I'm able to see this diverse from the time I was a boy before I was even able to appreciate it. But as you get older, you certainly understand the value of looking at uh, how people live in such radically different ways. Uh, and then uh, the, the next time, which is the, the question for uh, Alex, and this will be the second to last thing, unfortunately, uh, talking about people in America being sort of demotivated and, uh, I was gonna use a stronger word, but I'll just say demotivated, uh, hopeless, that, that, that's probably the, the best way of putting it. Um, the youth is, is troublesome. Uh, and a lot of people who should be rising to the cause of, you know, having some sort of renaissance of uh, great American values, 
people who should be at the, uh, at the, the, the most brightest minds, the activists for the future of the American right, a lot of them seem to be lost between certain forms of proposition nationalism. Uh, others seem to be focused on like a bizarre sort of like uh, 1500s Spain, religious revival, whatever, in a Protestant country. Uh, and then others go the route of this sort of Andrew Tate stuff. And that's probably, I mean, all this stuff is concerning, but uh, the, the Tate stuff really is because that's probably what has the most visceral uh, connection with younger people, wherein they sort of lionize this guy. And these are the people yeah. who should be doing stuff like, you know, looking to start businesses, looking to advance themselves in a big business, looking to start a family, looking to run for city council, you know, guys in their 20s and early 30s. But a lot of the people who should be doing this in America instead uh, really became enamored of Tate, even when it became clear what he really was. And you and I are one of the few people, uh, shall we say, the non-establishment, right? I'm a sociopolitical realist. My views pull towards the right. So people want to say non-establishment, right? Whatever. I don't care. Uh, but we took a very hard line against Tate. And I think it's clear to see why we did. We don't really get into that. But uh, I think a better question is, what does the appeal of Tate to these young people who should be doing something positive for their future, the future of their community, and the future of uh, their country, uh, instead that they would waste it, you know, on on Tateism? Uh, what does that say to you about young people in America who really should be uh, basically building the future of its right? Well, I think it says something like there's a, there's a nihilism, but there's also like the incentive structures are different. Um, I mean. I mean, in my view, like Tate has kind of like a third world view in terms of like what he's like in terms of what's prioritized. Get money, get women, buy buy fancy cars, you know, mm -hmm. travel, do whatever. I mean, to me, it's like a very empty life. I mean, I, I don't I do not. I mean, to me, it's kind of like it's like a dated view. Like, why does that that stuff doesn't even matter anymore like it used to uh, in terms of like cars and flash and showing glitz and all that kind of stuff like that's not. I don't get it. Um, I think I think that part of it is young men are angry with women, and social media makes it to blame the other and, and get blame women and like, mm -hmm. and you have a bunch of people like there's just that are reaffirming all of this stuff. You know, like a social media is driving people to someone like him, and then they see him all the algorithms and it's validating and it's like. Dude, I went to high school with guys like Andrew Tate. I know these, I know the type. Incredible con men. And they can compartmentalize because they have like psychopathic, sociopathic skills, hmm. like, you know, high verbal IQ. They can compartmentalize you and read you and find out what you want to hear. And they can kind of play to you. Now, if you're savvy and you can see through bullshit, you can kind of know. And then they know too. There's like these guys are smart and they're like, this guy's not going to go for it. I'm going to go move on to somebody else. I had one friend like this, by the way, and I learned a lot. I was friends with this guy for a year mm -hmm. and he would borrow money from me and bum cigarettes. And like, I, you know, and finally I just got tired. of him. Um, but man, he was a smooth talker. He could get with any girl. I mean, unbelievable. Not the best looking guy either, but man, he had a good line of bullshit. These women would put up with anything he did. I'm like, it didn't make any sense, you know, but I, but I knew what he was. But see, someone like the guy I knew back in high school, there wasn't no social media. You know, he couldn't go behave like that. Andrew Tate is a very smart person that um, 
has devout followers. You know, he's got a great interest. I mean, like he has real skills. I mean, I don't want to like take that away from him at all. Like he got in the ring, he's got courage, like he's fought it out with other people. But, you know, the, the, the seediness of the businesses that he was involved in, like whenever you're involved in like the can business and emotionally manipulating women to go emotionally manipulate other men to give them money. What does that say about your no. character, man? You cannot disconnect that. Like you cannot sit out, go out there and go preach certain values when that's in your past, because a decent person would never do that kind of stuff. Like, I know we all got to hustle and make, make money. And I know it's like, it's hard out there. I mean, he's a hustler. Give him, I, I give him credit for that, but that's just not something that in my view is like, that's, I, I don't have anything to do with people like that and nobody decent should, but um, I think it, it plays well on social media. Like to me, he's like an exaggerated character in a lot of these clips, like it's over the top and the way he communicates and enunciates and, I, I, you know, I do not understand it, but um, like for me, but younger people, I guess, you know, this is an idea like this could be what masculinity is to them. A guy that's, that, you know, going to take what he wants. And for whatever reason, I still don't really understand how he was able to manipulate the algorithms or get a team of people to manipulate the algorithms to rise as fast as he did. I do not I do not understand how that could happen unless it was somehow like orchestrated or they let him do it. Um, I don't think it could happen mm -hmm. again, but he really I, I he's a smart guy. I, I, I want to give him credit. Like he has real skills, but in terms of like and this is something too, Joseph, and I don't want to go on forever here, but when somebody has certain oh, sure, strengths. Fine. Yeah. So okay, let's acknowledge the guy has real strengths. Like he's got some exceptional qualities. That doesn't mean you should go emulate him because you can't do that. You're not a six foot two jacked kickboxer guy that has a very high risk tolerance, you know, that that's, that doesn't and, and has very questionable morality. Like you're not going to be able to go do that. Like most guys cannot live like Andrew Tate. So, um, mm -hmm. you know, I look at it this way, take, you know, take the good, you know, throw away the bad, but he's really not somebody to emulate. But I think, there's not a lot of people out there worth emulating. Like for me, it was my my father and it was men in my life and it was men at our church and it was my dad's friends and it was my uncle and my grandpa. Like there were men that like had families, went to work, you know, um, decent human beings, reliable, consistent, um, didn't swear. Like there's just a certain way they conducted themselves that was you know honorable and dignified. And that is gone now. That is gone. So you have somebody like him that um, can insert himself in the age of social media. Like, I thought he was going to be the first social media action star. I talked about that on Twitter. I said, this guy is like a social media action star. Like, he goes to Baghdad, Iraq, and he's documenting the whole thing and taking video. And I'm like, this is actually really cool. And unfortunately, like, that didn't work out because they're not going to allow for it to happen. But for a while, he was. it looked like that movie was going to happen. So I think it's just there's there's a total lack of good male role models. And when I see a lot of like, you know, athletes, entertainers, you know, actors, mm -hmm. um, I'm not impressed in terms of like these are people that you want to go emulate with a lot of. Them. I mean, they're I, I for me personally, I looked at men in my sphere as a kid growing up and there were better masculine role models back then when I grew up 25, you know. 
20, 25 years ago. It, it really has changed. Like there's been a feminization of men, even men that I respect. There's been like this feminization that's gone on. So a caricature of masculinity can 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 rise very quickly. Absolutely. And I think that Tate's rise would not be possible if not for number one, the manipulation of social media algorithms, which you referred to and today I agree that it would be impossible for that to happen uh, even though it wasn't long ago so it's just a few years ago but since then uh, various platforms have been instituted more safeguards uh, <laughs> because of Tate uh, but uh, absolutely looking at uh, something much yeah looking at something much more important looking at society there is a lack of positive uh, male role models. There are lots of negative role models, and obviously that explains why a lot of guys do unfortunate things. But it's hard to find any sort of person that people can look up to, and someone like Tate emerges out of a vacuum uh, like that, yeah. uh, where he can provide a caricature, but also a very pleasing emotional... Uh, it's how, how do I put it? He he provides a feeling to people uh, who are desperate that they can be something more than they are, even if what he's peddling is not good. Because obviously, if you had a society full of Andrew Tate's, the society would collapse very quickly. Even though yeah. they would have higher than average intelligence, which he very clearly does. I mean, his father was a chess grandmaster. You know, you're not the son of someone like that, and typically you come out, you know, falling off a turnip wagon. But uh, he uh, is. He is someone who has intelligence without uh, any sort of, uh, I would say, gentlemanly quality that one would find in certain East Asian and Western cultures. That, that's probably the best way of putting it. He's sort of like a very intelligent barbarian out of the Middle East in like the 7th century. Uh, and you take that and you put it in, uh, in uh, the world today where people are so interconnected due to social media and the proliferation of uh, technology that he could have a really negative effect as he did. Although I will say that his intelligence does not necessarily mean he makes the best decisions. Obviously, he had himself on the record talking about the sort of scams he was doing, talking about how he was right. one thing uh, behind closed doors, another thing in, pro in uh, public, excuse me. That just goes to show his hubris. So his intelligence is not able to overcome his hubris. But also, him going to Romania, him going to Romania, a very ethnocentric uh, Eastern European country by any standard, and thinking that he, being uh, a non-Romanian, put it mildly, also, you know, Romania is very race-conscious, non-white, thinking that he was going to have this operation where he was doing X, Y, and Z, singling out blonde-haired, blue-eyed women, as he said he was. I mean, that's just crazy, the idea that the Romanians would put up with that. Of all places, Romania, you've had a better chance getting away with that in the UK or the US. But uh, it, it, going to Romania, thinking that because it's a poor country, he'd be able to literally buy off the system there. And then the people would ignore their ethnocentrism and their racial consciousness to let him do whatever the hell he wanted to their women. I mean, that's a sort of extreme self-absorption, uh, like a profound, uh, a profoundly negatively high self-esteem that, you know, uh, even if you're high intelligence as he is, clearly it's going to override your intelligence in terms of determining which decisions you make. And the results in his case speak for themselves. Yeah, well said. I mean, it's judgment and character and that, you know, I remember him talking about how you need to have all these passports and be on multiple grids. What if you get caught on the wrong grid at the wrong time? That's what happened to him. I mean, you know, Dubai was a great place for him. 
And whenever this whole thing clears up, I would I think he'll probably go back to buy, set up shop, and that's where he should stay. That's where that's what really suits him. But in Romania, like you go to a third world co- or developing country like Romania, I mean, and you develop these. Here's the whole thing: like people that engage in gray market or black market activity and potentially have ties to like organized crime or they're doing things that are a little bit not on the up and up. You do not talk about it. You do not talk about it on social media. You do not record courses. You don't like document the whole thing and put it out there because you need validation from people you don't know or because you want to sell it. Like if you're making a lot of money doing that, why would you want to go? Because you're adding a layer of exposure to what you're doing whenever you're recording all this. And it is hubris and it is bad judgment, which puts everything else in question. You know, like, I mean, if you know people, you just don't do that. Like, if you want to be a gangster or you want to be in the underworld, you do not have a, I mean, I don't know, like, what kind of people, I've encountered a lot of different kinds of people. And that is not what you do, if that's the kind of activity you want to be involved in. Like, you do not go on social media at all, um, because there's no need for it. So for him needing that kind of validation, I think it shows, too, that, like, social media really can be boom bust. Like somebody like him can rocket up the leaderboard. But think about this. Okay, so you're famous. So you made a bunch of money. You pissed off the wrong people in a country because you kind of tried to act like, hey, I'm here. I can do whatever I want. Well, you're going to piss off the wrong people at a certain point. Here in America, we do have a legal system that's pretty damn functional. And you, you know, might be able to get your way out of it, you know. Um, But over there, if you piss off the wrong people, it's a whole different process. I don't know what, the, you know, what the legal, you know, dual of law judicial process is over there. But I mean, he made a terrible mistake in how he went about things. And now we'll see what happens with it. But that's a, that's an issue with judgment. And so it's like your your assets are frozen. Everything could be seized from you. Um, was it really worth it just for fame? I don't know. I mean, I, what, I, I do know somebody that's good friends with him and knows him well. And they said that he's just somebody that has to push things all the way. Like he has to push things to the absolute limit. It's in his nature. Like he's not somebody that can pull back. Like he's not going to be satisfied. Like if he's got an opportunity or he's doing something that's working, he's just going to go, you know, he doesn't care. And so, you know, is he going to have longevity? I don't know. I haven't, honestly, I have not been keeping up for a while. Like am I, I, I don't know, have any clue what's going on with do you? I, I, I follow him in, in, from a distance. When he had his blow up, that's what really struck me and, and how he was putting all the stuff that he did out there basically on paper, with, you know, which is to say online today. Uh, really, uh, it was just crazy that, that he had this hubris. And even guys like you and I who are not involved with anything uh, you know, below board, we'll put it that way, even we could see just no. how awful his strategy was. Uh, and, and he did it anyway. And he got away with it for a while. Uh, but, I mean, this guy uh, said in a text message conversation that he was washing money. So, I mean, if you have a guy like that around saying what he's saying, he's going to be toxic, uh, you know, under any circumstances. So it, it's just it, – it's it's bizarre, and that's what really caught me about his story. But also the, the more important thing was the influence he's having over young men. It's just uh, uh, disastrous. Uh, although now I would hope that he sort of flamed out of it and they'll move on to someone else. But the question is – who the hell will they move on move on to? Uh, uh, very much an open 
question. And uh, speaking of questions, the final one, unfortunately, because it really has been an outstanding discussion. Final one. Uh, you are uh, planning to leave the U.S. and live in the Middle East. What informed your decision to do this? And what do you expect to happen? Obviously, share where you're headed to, but please tell us all about uh, this. Yeah, so first of all, I've really enjoyed the conversation tonight. It's been a pleasure. I've been wanting to do it for a while. I have a lot of admiration for your views and for your account. Yeah, I think you're a great pragmatist and very well informed. So I've really enjoyed it. Um, Thank you. Yeah, so, um, you know, it, this has been something I thought about. You know, my wife is you know obviously from Lebanon. And one thing I've, I, I've seen with her is when she's in the Middle East, whether it's, you know, I've seen it in Dubai, I've seen it in Lebanon, she's on a different frequency. Um, these she's amongst her people speaking her mother tongue and she really comes to life in a way that she you know she's a very vibrant person I mean she's amazing she's like basically bouncing around she's that like an energizer bunny but over there um, she really loves it and I've been over there enough times now to where I'm comfortable with it and she it's, this is really my wife like she moved over here for me when I had this beverage business and she was starting up a, she had the only pelvic floor physical health clinic in the Middle East, in Lebanon. I remember like, she's very entrepreneurial. She is a true innovator pioneer and she's passionate about helping people. And another thing I want to say about her, you know, the Lebanese Red Cross is basically an EMS service that it's volunteer only. And she would, she and her family, like these are, it's, it's mostly Christians, but there's Muslims, but it's these young people that like there's rigorous process of vetting them and testing before they can get in. But basically Lebanon has like a volunteer EMS service. It's run by the Red Cross that helps people. And she's helped people in like roadside accidents. Like she's given CPR to somebody that, you know, didn't make it. I mean, she has done a lot of stuff. So she's like truly got this great heart and loves helping people. And that's what really drew me to her. That is um, outstanding. It really is. Yeah, I mean, it's when you can find a woman like this. I mean, I was willing to go all the way across the world when I met her, you know, to, uh, you know, pursue her. But, you know, she's got the opportunity to do something really special in, in Dubai, in, in, in the Middle East. And she has a lot of clients, you know, since she's become a mother, I feel like her power levels have increased. Um, that's something that happens to a woman after childbirth, like they really are kind of renewed in a sense. Um, and they're really it's different. Like their power level goes like this. So she, um, you know, has the opportunity to do something over there and help people in that part of the world. There's a huge push for women's health. Um, there's very little competition and she can be the best in the world at what she does in the Middle East. And, you know, I can help her from a business standpoint because I'm a guy that knows how to do strategy, operations, execution, scaling. Like that's, that's me. That's what I do. And so you know, the general theme is, um, I think the Middle East and particularly Saudi Arabia and Dubai and the UAE are going to be opportunity zones, um, not the opportunity zone here, but they're going to be you know great areas for the next 20 years. Um, they really are business oriented, particularly in the UAE. Um, it's very diverse and multicultural, but within the auspices of you're there to do business and there's not all this tension there's not all this stuff and by the way tucker carlson recently went to abu dhabi and met with um i think the uh you know the sheik that runs that runs the whole show he said he's incredible 
like the best leader that I've spoken with and that, and this is the most well-run country that I've been to. And, and, and so, you know, Tucker sees there's a model that's working over there with these absolute monarchies um, where they can marshal people and resources and capital in such a way that they can build huge infrastructure projects. You know, they can really get things done and they have a real vision and where they go with the future. And I look at Dubai particularly as um, kind of the epicenter of like where East meets West. And I think there's a lot of ambition and energy and drive and talented people that are moving to that part of the world. And um, it's not as beautiful as Miami, Joseph. I didn't mean to say that. I mean, I, I love South Florida and I have nothing but good things to say about Miami. Uh, but I think for us, that's going to be a really interesting place. And, you know, one thing, too, I'll say, like when I announced this to the Guild that I was going to the Middle East, you know, staying in Lebanon for a little bit, which isn't going to happen now, then going on to Dubai, I wondered how would the guys feel about that? They love it because it shows somebody that is taking action and massive action and doing something that's off the beaten path. And there's a lot of people out there that talk and say they're going to do this and that and they don't do it. Um, I happen to have a unique opportunity because of my wife and because of the relationships that she has in that part of the world where I can go do something like this. If I would, if it was just me and I didn't have that, it would make, it I would be a fish out of water. I'd have no chance, but, um, I see, I see some really, really good things going on in that part of the world. And I want to go be a part of it. And I want to help other people that are interested in this type of thing to, um, you know, have a better understanding and what and what they may have to do. Like, I'm very bullish on the Middle East and potentially Africa based on the relationships that I have, the intelligence that I'm getting from people that are there, that these are. And I think that in America, a lot of men are, like, they have that pioneering spirit, but they don't really know how to apply it. Mm -hmm. And my whole thing is, like, listen, you know, save up some money for six months and plan out a trip and go see the world. Like, what's, what are you most drawn to? Is it Latin America? Is it the Mediterranean? Is it somewhere in Europe? Is it Africa? Um, there's a lot of population growth and a lot of projects and things that have to be built in Africa and the Middle East. And if you're an enterprising young person that's watching this and you're intrigued by it, you need to go learn more about it and potentially go visit and see for yourself. So it's an opportunity. Obviously, it is. And there's a hell of a lot of opportunity in the Middle East, even someone such as myself, who would by no means uh, any kind of expert on the economies of the Middle East uh, sees that it, it, it is definitely a land of uh, fortune. And I have no doubt that more people from the West will move there. I, they, they've been moving there for some time, but I think they'll continue to do so. Uh, it's, you know, it, it wouldn't be for me, but it's for a lot of people. And the fact that it is for so many people uh, says something very good about what one finds, particularly in a place like uh, like Dubai. Uh, you know, we're not talking about going to East Jerusalem. Uh, so because people only talk about the Middle East, a lot of times they just imagine people wandering around a desert with camels. But obviously, there's so much more to it than that. And uh, Dubai is a great example of that, as is Saudi Arabia. I, I have heard mm -hmm. that their economy really is coming up in the world. They're a very wealthy country, but they have, in many cases, a fairly low level of development uh, for various reasons, but they're becoming more widespread in their economic development. That's the thing. 
Uh, and uh, Riyadh, I, I have heard quite a few Westerners talking about it being something to watch. And I would not be surprised if it is uh, a uh, something of an economic, well, I mean, the economy there is already in many respects great, but I would not be surprised if it's something like uh, <laughs> a boom town. Uh, and I guess it's kind of odd because you could already say that it is because it's already doing well. But what I mean to say is that it becomes like another New York or Tokyo in terms of its economic power. I think that's definitely on the table. Uh, and uh, a lot of, not all, definitely not all, but a lot of the Gulf states uh, are in a good position to capitalize. Of course, for, you know, your United Arab Emirates, you have uh, a cutter, so you know there there is variation there, uh, or a Yemen. But uh, I, I think that there's going to be a lot. There already is a lot. There's going to be increased uh, energy in the uh, economic, uh, worldwide economic uh, importance, vitality, whatever, of uh, many Gulf states, and it's going to have an impact on all of us. Of what impact? Who the hell knows? But. These places are not going to be second fiddle to the Western economies uh, for the rest of the century. Of that, I'm absolutely certain. Well, you're you're right on. And um, you think about what they're buying here in the United States. You know, like I'm living here in Surfside, and the southern um, Champlain Tower that fell down was bought by Damak, who's an Emirati developer. You know, they spent 120 million dollars on the lot, and they're going to be building a Zaha Hadid. Um, you know, mid-rise there. It's going to be a beautiful structure, um, you know, that honors the victims of the people that died a couple of years ago. And, but I mean, that's, that's an Emirati project. And you look at the investments. I mean, you know, look at Live Golf and what the Saudi, um, you know, PIF fund did. But one thing to know is that the, the amount of money the Saudi Arabia has is unbelievable. Mm -hmm. You know, they are, you know, with Riyadh, I think it's just a little under 8 million people. And I believe like within 10 years, they want to get it to something like 14 million. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Jeddah is a rapidly developing city. And of course, they're spending probably over a trillion dollars on Neom, which is actually in progress. Mm -hmm. Like these are major construction projects. And the thing, what it comes down to, Joseph, is leadership. Mm -hmm. They really do have the right leadership. Like you may not like MBS. I mean, I happen to have admiration for what he's doing um, in terms of he's got a real vision for the future and he's going after it. And they realize, like, hey, we've got to modernize and draw people in, um, or we're not going to be viable in 50 years when the reason, you know, our most precious resource isn't going to be this. You know, I, I personally don't know if that's going to be true or not. I think it's still going to be very necessary, and it's, it's still going to be an important thing for them. But they're they're a major player, and um, you know, again, I'd just encourage anybody. Like, I've got one friend lives here in Miami. He's a tech entrepreneur. And he's going to Riyadh, and uh, he's working with the Ramco, by the way. Mm -hmm. And he's going to Dubai probably once a quarter. And he said, Alex, I need. My, he said, if everything goes to shit here, you know, that's my backup plan. You know? <laughs> I'm like, well, I don't want it to. I don't want it to work out like that. But I do think you're thinking about things the right way. Um, you know, another thing that's great too in terms of, you know, Dubai. In Dubai and Riyadh are one hour flight away from each other, but you know, I think you've got Bali. This may be a four-hour flight. You know, you've mm -hmm. got India. You know, it's probably three or four hours. You've got Europe. That's maybe four hours. So in terms of being able to access, you know, a lot of the Eurasian continent, like the desirable places, I mean, Dubai is actually a really good, a really good place to be.
Uh, it is. It's physically well positioned, and uh, you know it, it, that that goes for so much. Zian talks a lot about that, the geography of economic success, and uh, it's often overlooked. But definitely, uh, it's a big issue here. And I wish you and your family great success in your move. I'm sure you'll have it. And I'm sure you'll continue to stay active on social media, even after you've uh, relocated. Yeah, I'll be interesting to see, you know, whenever that, that is going to be a, um, a vibe shift. And so it'll be interesting to see what my content is, because I do know whenever I'm outside of the States, things are a little bit different um, in terms of I'm not quite as engaged in all the conversation here. But um, I'm excited about it. You know, I know the guys in the guild are behind me. I've got a lot of people out there that, you know, you know, send me well wishes, you know, on Twitter saying, hey, this is awesome. And so I want to show people what you can do. I want to say, like, hey, you know what? If, if you have an opportunity where you've got to relocate and go clear across the world, damn it, go do it. Because I really do think we're coming into an area, uh, era of great opportunity for those that are willing to take risks. You got to take a risk, guys. That's the big thing. Like, you can't just, mm. it's not going to come to you. You have to go to it. Yeah, that's true. Uh, it, it, that's why a lot of people want to come to places like Florida, going back to the concept of uh, dynamism. Uh, and I, although if you are in Florida, it does come to you, and that could be good or bad. Uh, but uh, absolutely, for most people, they have to go somewhere where the, where the economic and social opportunities are. And you see that with people moving to places like uh, Dubai. You see people moving to places like Miami. Uh, and you see uh, basically the consequences of a lack of innovation uh, in places like New York. It's hard to imagine. I never say that about a New York City, but it's true. Uh, and increasingly San Francisco and LA. So yeah, the, the, the you know people go where the action is and the action is bound to have negative and positive consequences, but you hope it'll be more positive than negative. And uh, the question as to you know which is going to be, I think boils down to management. How is the place managed? Uh, how do uh, it politics function, but also how does the local economy deal with uh, business people as well as their employees, all these things are massively important. Obviously, uh, Dubai has found a winning strategy, at least for now, maybe more like a winning formula. That that, yeah. that could be the better way of describing it. Uh, Miami's doing well enough, although it's a bit shakier. Uh, and uh, we'll see what happens. But for sure, uh, I, you know, I, like I said, I wish you the best in your move. Are You are leaving later this year, am I correct? Yeah. Um... We're going to have to reevaluate. You know, we were planning on being in Lebanon in about two and a half weeks. Mm. So, um, and visiting family in the interim. Now, what I think we'll do is just stay here in Miami through the end of the month, and then we'll go see my family for a few weeks, and then we'll kind of plan, you know, the move to Dubai. But I'm looking, actually, looking forward. Um, you know, I've got a three and a half month old daughter, and you know, I know my parents really want to see her. Um, I know she wants to spend time with her cousins. And she has, you know, people in my family that she hasn't met yet. So we're going to take advantage of that. I think we'll be in Texas for a few weeks, maybe several weeks, and then we'll uh, we'll set sail for Dubai. Well, I'm glad you have the plan all laid out. Uh, obviously, a lot of people today do stuff without making a plan, and that typically winds up being a plan for failure. I never imagined that'd be your case, though. That goes without saying. Uh, but you. That, <laughs> oh. You're, you're very welcome. I, I, no, it, it's really great how things are going for you. I'm sure the guild 
will continue to grow. Uh, and uh, I have no doubt that your commentary will take on an interesting new dimension once you are in uh, in, in Dubai, uh, because I mean, all the people that you're bound to meet, all the perspectives on business, culture, politics, so on and so forth. I think that your Twitter feed will definitely be a place where people will find interesting uh, commentaries. And I look forward to reading them. I really do. Obviously, I retweet a lot of your stuff. You're welcome. I retweet a lot of your stuff because I find it to be very valuable indeed. And I think more people should uh, read it. And that leads me to say, as we close this discussion out, people uh, should follow Alex at lead pacer on Twitter X whatever uh check out his stuff if you've not done so already you have I think 10,000 followers now am I correct yeah I mean it's we finally got there um right you know now the sky's the limit I mean I feel like it, it, it took a little bit longer than I like but then when I look back over the last six months we've had some pretty good growth so um nowhere to go but up from here uh, yeah, uh, it, it, my, my account's done pretty decently as well. I hope to get it to 50,000 by the end of the year. Oh, you deserve uh, it. You should be you should be higher. <laughs> oh, thank you. But yeah, it's it, I actually was at 33 after the 2020 election, but then there was the uh, more or less pogrom of Twitter accounts and I was left at like 16 point whatever. So it's been, you know, tough to climb back up. And now since Elon took it over, it's become easier. Uh, so mm -hmm. I, I look forward, you know, Elon, you can say a lot of good and bad things about him, but on the whole, his takeover of Twitter has been a, it's been a net positive. There are no two ways about that for any, you know, uh, mis pitfalls there might be. Uh, I'm very glad about what's happened. And uh, I think Twitter will be the place for online, uh, discourse during the years to come. And it's going to be so much more than that if his vision pans out. But in any case, it's going to be something that people rely on, I think, uh, considerably. They already do, but even more as the years pass. I don't think Threads is going to do all that great, uh, although it already you know, it has quite a few people, but nowhere near the amount of Twitter. And I just don't think that's a good user interaction system, to, to be blunt. No, it, it's a copycat. That's what Zuckerberg does, and he's done an amazing job of it. But um, I'm sticking around on X. I think Elon, you know, I can be pretty critical of people, particularly people I like. Um, I can be pretty tough sometimes. But I think um, by and large, he's done a good job. You know, he's put some change in your wallet as well as mine. And I'm appreciative for that. And I do think that, you know, the conversation is more, um, it's more open and freewheeling than it was before. And you know, I want to see what he can do with it. This guy's an, he's a visionary, you know, and this was a company that was languishing, that it had a lot of different regimes. And, um, you know, I want to see someone like him perform. I don't love everything about him, but that's OK. I mean, I kind of look at it as this. He's providing a necessary utility and function that people like you and I need and millions and millions of other people need. So let's be part of that together. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's great that people can now monetize their account. I've yet to do that, but uh, I do, I do it. Yeah. I, I, I got money I, sitting there. I'm just telling you. Yeah. I know. Yeah. that That's the thing. I need to get verified, which I just never decided to do the eight bucks a month. I'll do that by the end of the year and then get the uh, advertising, uh, the monetization, which also includes subscriptions. So, uh, yeah, I'm going to try to take up the show to another level as the new year begins to actually, you know, make something of a job out of it. Who knows how that'll go? But uh, it's, it's, it's definitely the place if you're independent media 
to be on Twitter because the reach you have is better than you're going to get. I mean, you can't even compare the shithouse of YouTube to, 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 I mean, to, to, it's just, you know, it's ridiculous. Uh, but Twitter is a place that gives people, I think, an unparalleled opportunity to make a difference in terms of disseminating ideas. And now with, uh, Tucker was the, the revolutionary here. Now it's becoming, even though my show started before his on Twitter, uh, it, people are expecting now to watch news commentary programs on Twitter more than they ever did before. And people are expecting to do that when they run into your show. It's not going to so, seem so strange to them to watch a video on a website where they typically think, no, I'm reading something that somebody wrote. Uh, so, yeah, Twitter is the place to be. It definitely is in a way like the Miami or Dubai of social media. Uh, I, I don't think the Twitter knockoffs have any real future, uh, especially like, you know, Truth Social, Getter, of course, no. talking about <laughs> a threat. Uh, so Twitter is where it's at, whether you like it or not. It is what it is. The conversation is here. Um you know, our audiences are here. This is where the smart people are. This is where the change makers are. And that's the way it's going to be. I mean, these these copycat platforms that are trying to go replicate something like this or YouTube or Instagram, it's not going to work because people have trained themselves to go to these platforms. Like that's the whole thing. This has been ingrained in our consciousness. It's part like the, our mind space is occupied by certain platforms and Elon understands how powerful that is. That's why he was willing to probably overpay to get this asset hmm. and he will make money on it. Oh, absolutely. And, yeah. and do us all a great service, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's an exciting place to be. And I look forward to what's going to happen over the months and years to come. Well, Alex, thank you very much for stopping by. Uh, mm -hmm. It's been an outstanding conversation and I hope that uh, there will be another one. I hope so. From the other side of the world, Joseph, it's been a pleasure. I appreciate your time and um, I'll see you on X. Absolutely. See you. And I appreciate your time as well. Best to your family, by the way. And uh, once again, people do follow Alex at lead pacer. Uh, see if he can get up to 20,000 followers by the end of the year. It's ambitious, but it can definitely happen. All right. Thank you, Joseph. Absolutely. Thank you. Take it easy, everyone. Stay safe. Be well and cheers. Cheers.